we need more psychology. We need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger and we are pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man. Very obviously he has gone insane. Primordial instincts to kill without feeling, without passion, without judgment. Primordial instincts to kill me without feeling, without passion, totally without judgment. Primordial instincts to kill the gym without feeling, without passion, without judgment. Primordial instincts to kill. Are my methods unsound? Without feeling, without passion, without judgment. Primordial instinct to kill. Without feeling, without passion, at all. Without judgment. Primordial instinct to kill. Without feeling, without passion, without judgment. He is the great danger. And we are pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man. Far too little. His psyche should be studied because we are the origin of all coming evil. As a nation, we are justly proud of our resources. The people who produce our food. The towns and cities where they live. In event of war, enemies may attempt to destroy or disable our people. And our production by striking directly at the civilian population. Denied the products of our farms and factories, we could not wage war on any front. We can be attacked in spite of our excellent defenses. Attacks may be made in many ways, with bombs or with biological weapons. This might be one form of biological warfare. It could make people sick so they couldn't work. That's what it actually does, but you may have heard. There's a new poison. One ounce can kill all the people in the United States. from the truth. Biological warfare? What do they expect me to do about it? It's not my headache. You're wrong. You had better find out the facts about biological warfare or BW. It can be aimed at you and your home or at work, at your food crops, your livestock. Biological weapons can be divided into three groups, germs, toxins, and plant growth regulators. Some germs cause cholera, others cause typhoid fever, plague, and such diseases.
Toxins are special poisons produced by other germs. They do the harm in diseases like food poisoning and diphtheria. Special plant growth regulators can destroy food crops, just as weed killer can destroy weeds. The public health nurse and the many other members of our public health system have been fighting nature's biological attacks for years. We have proved that our health and medical systems check the spread of infectious diseases. Our livestock and crops are guarded by a nationwide network of federal, state, and local agencies and experts. Government regulations assure the purity of many food products. But BW attacks can be made in spite of our health safety systems. Aerosols containing diseased germs could be used. These aerosols could be spread over large areas. Submarines could release aerosols near coastal cities. Specially designed germ-carrying bombs could be dropped. Enemy agents could contaminate the city water supply. How can we protect ourselves from BW attacks? Keep yourself and your family clean. Don't help germs by making things easy for them. Germs have trouble living in clean places. Enroll in a Red Cross home nursing course. Then if sickness does come to your home, you'll know what to do. Always report sickness promptly. And doctor, Mary's temperature is over a hundred. Good morning. Here's the news. Civil Defense Headquarters announced today that the sharp increase in the number of cases of illness during the last few days have led authorities to suspect that a biological warfare attack may have taken place. As yet, the cause of this outbreak has not been identified. Civil Defense Health Authorities recommend that you should take the following precautions. If such an announcement is made in your city, don't give way to fear. Just remember that scientists would already be working to control the outbreak. Probably some of the people in your neighborhood would become sick. Reports of the disease would start pouring into health and medical authorities. The number and location of cases would be plotted on a map of the area. Scientists would go to work immediately to identify the cause of the disease. Meanwhile, the outbreak would take on a definite pattern. There are important things you can do in your home if you are told a biological warfare attack has taken place. Be careful what you eat and drink. Canned and bottled goods are safe, but scrub them before opening. Packaged foods in cupboards and refrigerators are probably not contaminated. Boil or cook all exposed food before eating. Water used for drinking or washing after an attack must be boiled. Wash all contaminated garments thoroughly to remove germs or toxins. If your doctor recommends sending a member of your family to the hospital, cooperate. Local health and medical authorities would distribute instructions so that the outbreak of the disease could be controlled. Follow their instructions closely. If you are called upon for a blood sample, don't hesitate to give it. Blood samples would be extremely important in helping the scientists identify the germs or poisons.
Health and medical authorities would identify the cause of the disease as soon as possible. The recovery of those already sick would be speeded up with the use of modern drugs. Mass inoculations might be necessary to keep the disease from spreading. This would require the cooperation of everyone. Remember, BW attacks can be made against food crops, livestock, and people. Our health and medical systems are the foundations of our defense against biological warfare. Our food supply is guarded by a nationwide network of federal, state, and local agencies and experts. If we are attacked with biological warfare, health and medical authorities will tell you what to do so that the disease could be brought under control. Cooperate with the authorities. Above all, don't listen to scare talk, rumors, or myths. Get a copy of this official booklet at the first opportunity. Read it and remember it. Do your part and we can successfully combat biological warfare. All right, welcome to the TylerBlawyer.com live streaming show with the BioSciWar aerosolized innovations today in part seven of the BioSciWar. Uh, we've been cruising through week by week uh, covering the information in the BioSciWar, and this week we'll be going into the aerosolized innovations and uh, touching on that a little bit. You can, you can imagine a little bit what we're talking about there. Uh, we've gone into that in the past episodes as well, how it seems like there is this interest in making things aerosolized. And uh, as far as, you know, vaccinations or bioweapons, and as we'll discover along in the bio war, there really might not be much of a difference between vaccination research and biological weapons research, uh, gain-of-function research, dual-edged innovations as we've read on the show and the dangers of dual use or um, really defensive and offensive bioweapons research and how there really isn't any difference in the long run when it comes to the problematic cases that can come out of that sort of research and uh, the things that people might do with that information to weaponize it and we are exploring that here in the BioSci War the theory that I've put forth in the BioSci War is pretty much the evidence that I'm uncovering appears to point to U.S. implications, uh, research done from the Third Reich Nazis being imported into the United States under Operation Paperclip um, and ex exchanges with information from Unit 731, uh, the Japanese Biological Weapons Research uh, Division in World War II, and how that links into the Lyme disease research that Willie Big Bordofer was doing. We read from the book Bitten last week with Chris Newby's research on Willie Bordofer and uh, the extensive details that can be pulled up with the links between people like Eric uh, Shroud and Heinrich Hindler and the different biological weapons Nazi 
scientists who were researching and imported for their research abilities and passed through sort of behind the scenes, behind the Nuremberg going on. There was a large amount of information being accumulated to continue this research. And so today we're going to go you know, further into that. And I, we have a large see also section building up in the show notes of the bio war. Another thing that we can talk about today is the page that I built. So here's the tylerbloyer.com uh, front page, right? Uh, you might recognize that if you've been there before. And below that, you can uh, find the bio war here in the latest episode here. If you were to click that open, you would come to this new category. Now, if you click this page or this here, or if you find in the menu the bio war, you'll be able to find this uh, page that it links to. Let's go ahead and click that. And this is a new category page to be able to easier, uh, more easily navigate these episodes. And it looks like I'm a little out of crop there, so we'll just fix that up. Oh, thank you. Okay, so again, this just makes it easier to navigate the actual episodes that we've been doing. I realized that I didn't say part one, part two, part three, so the dates and in chronological order, and that makes it easier to navigate to find, hopefully for you. In today's uh, aerosolized innovations, we can go down and see the see also section. And so this section is the articles. A lot of the articles that we covered last week from the Lancet here down were the articles that we covered to sort of recap what we've been talking about as far as what the evidence seems to point to, uh, the potential for... SARS-CoV-2 to be a genetically modified uh, bioweapon, uh, gain-of-functioned research, a gain-of-functioned virus that is, in my, in this humble streamer uh, producer's opinion, it was developed and intentionally released on to the population in a sort of get-out-in-front-of-it scenario to be able to um, predict and uh, conclude and conceive the solutions to a pandemic and then be able to play it out in real time and have more control over that situation when it seemed like this this is an obvious scenario that's going to unfold at some point anyway as you've heard many people say that's not me you know in 2017 we have Fauci uh, standing up at some kind of NIAID function and he's talking about how there will absolutely be a pandemic uh, in the coming years you know we've seen Bill Gates predicting We've seen documents in this show about DARPA and so on and so forth going on about that. So some of the more uh, stronger evidence that, and articles that you can go through and read as long as you know you find these places that I've been posting from reputable, as well as Grand Theft World podcasts number 7, number 11, uh, the number 9 episode that we had Adam Finnegan on. Uh, I would also highly suggest the Dave Emery archives. Uh, you'll hear from some of Dave Emery today on the bio war. I don't, I think, yeah, I featured some of his work all the way back in uh, the commencement of hostilities. We listened to For the Record episode number 1172, maybe. I could be wrong about that. Uh, but there's the rec episodes that you may want to check out from uh, Dave and then the Grand Theft World again, the whole series we've been uncovering going a lot into the current plague and the pandemic that's ongoing 
and then of course the the BioSciWar series against again linked here. And uh, today, you know, I'm filling out those resources. So by the time this show is up, by the time most people are seeing it, these re this resource section will be uh, filled in. Now, if I go over and click update on the draft I had up, there will actually be some resources there now. I'll just refresh, yeah. And uh, I'll add and build out to that as we go. So there you go. I tried to make things a little bit easier to navigate on the website, and that's an ongoing uh, thing that I'll be doing. Uh, in a moment, we'll be taking again a look at this book, Gene Wars, uh, but we'll just come back here for a minute. So again, last week I spoke on a, a, an issue that I see as as a potential, a, a larger issue within the truth community, the freedom community, quote unquote, is people willing to just say and dismiss, you know, everything as a false flag in the sense that it's fake or in the sense that there's nothing going on with the whole, you know, lockdown, greater reset thing, or even the, the pandemic itself, which is more what I'm referring to, and how, well, you know, poking fun even at, at, at people saying that they're sick and saying, well, you know, it's just the flu, or come on, guys, we can't really fall for this, and not really having any inclination or, or it seems like historical context on the type of things that we've been going into here with you know, the Nazis' interest in biological weapons and taking zoological uh, viruses from, like, bats or monkeys or pangolins and hybridizing, gain-of-functioning these things, trying to find a way to have a cross-species jump into the human race. And then we look at things like SV40, this simian monkey virus. Um, I just ordered the book Dr. Mary's Monkeys and can't wait to dig into that one. Uh, but also the HIV virus... Uh, this C-19 thing is not the first time we have MERS. We have SARS-1, uh, which was a, a government-created uh, bioweapon, right? A militarized bioweapon, and now we have SARS-2. So if SARS-1 was made in a laboratory, what do you think SARS-2 would be, you know? Well, they added some MERS in there. They added some Ebola in there, you know, mixed in a little pangolin. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't know for sure. I'm not a virologist. I'm here asking the questions. I've covered uh, enough of the evidence, I think, up to this point that it's okay to wander a little bit with, with the theorizing. But again, I try not to put too much of my opinion into it and just try to cover the information. But I do see that issue of people, you know, obviously there's the issue of people just completely following orders and complying and going along and not asking any questions and never uh, putting up any resistance to any of the information coming at them. They don't, they don't critically challenge it. They just accept, you know, what authoritative figures, whatever their, you know, scientific, uh, whatever their particular expert flavor is. Because if you notice, there's different flavors of experts, let's say, or categories. You know, when you say we're supposed to listen to the experts, we need to be able to outsource our thinking and just accept what the experts say, right? Because they are the experts. Well, then which experts do we listen to? Because there's competing theories, right? And so the idea is, is to be able to challenge, you know, what you're being told, not to have your mind made up one way or the other about things. And I see a lot of that going on with this uh, coronavirus thing. And people like, basically, like I put it before, gambling and say, well, there's nothing going on. And last week I was joking about, you know, you'll be wearing a full body suit in five years. Yeah, there's nothing going on. And I don't mean that by, so you should be wearing a mask. I, I kind of listened to that and I thought, 
people could take that the wrong way and think that I'm making an argument for like, you'll be wearing a plastic suit, just you watch, buddy. You know, that's not what I'm saying either. I have yet to wear a mask throughout this whole pandemic. I have not put a mask on one time. The one time that I had to uh, sort of comply or le lessen my standard of where I'd like to operate in the world. Uh, and I'm not saying that I would love to go spreading around viruses. And I just don't feel like the mask helps you prevent the government bioweapons from, um, you know, attacking the particular race-specific bioweapons that they're creating. And so I just feel like, you know, putting a diaper on your face, I don't mean to be offensive, but there is a psychological thing going on here um, and, a, and a very much like a comforting thing to have something covering your identity at another filter, a mask, you know, and the feeling of having something up against your face. It's very much, um, you know, maternal or like going back to the womb, right? Like um, having a mother's uh, skin. I know this sounds a little weird, but there is a lot of psychological things that go on with mouth touching with, with smokers, um, have that habitual thing and that need that, that could be psychologically linked back to a lack of breastfeeding, right? Not, not having that connection. And then an, we, don't, we know that there's an ur urging back to things lost. You know, this is just human, uh, human activity. I don't, I don't want to say it's na nature. I don't know how much of, of nature that is. But it's it is something that we can recognize, okay? So to get off of that, all right. Now so again, so I'm not I'm not saying people should wear masks and you'll be wearing a rubber suit. I'm joke I'm kind of joking around, saying you know you're out there saying it's a hoax and there's nothing going on, and then watch like <laughs> it'll make very common sense. And it's especially with some of the stuff we've been looking at here. I mean, some of the plans and the things that they have been putting into our environment aren't uh, exactly friendly to the human uh, biology. And uh, there's all kinds of cancers and things that are going to be uh, created from things that are happening now, but have already been proven, like with, I said, with what I said before, the SV40 virus that was in, found to be in millions and millions and millions of polio vi uh, vaccines, actually still causing problems for people now. And uh, gave people cancer and it's it's a proven thing or similar to Roundup and how uh, for years, you know, people had said, oh, you know, Roundup, I'm not sure, glyphosate and uh, Monsanto, I'm not so sure about this. And they're, you know, laughed at and, oh, it's totally safe. You're crazy. You just have to trust the experts, right? Just trust, trust the experts at Monsanto. They, they know what they're talking about, right? And it turns out, no, no, it does cause cancer. Uh, glyphosate and uh, from Roundup in the Monsanto's Roundup causes cancer. And you can go look and see. And I'm not saying like we have to trust the courts because they've got it right. But there are cases coming out where people are suing Monsanto for giving, getting cancer from Roundup and winning those cases and getting uh, retribution, right? So there, there isn't just like, oh, you have to trust the experts at that time. No, like, they need to be questioned and our health is at stake Our literally like our livelihood and our health and our children's health is at stake for just saying, well, you can just trust the experts, you know, and that that's a ridiculous stance and a, ch a childish stance at best. It is foolish to behave that way in the world and you could end up causing your family millions and millions and millions of dollars in a lifetime of agony dealing with an injured child or an, an injured parent or an injured sibling 
who could have been, uh, you know, they could have avoided that risk had they just been a little bit more informed or even just, you know, had the tools to be able to critically think. So it's not like they need to come and watch this show so they can save their kids. That's not, you know, maybe this isn't the right show for that. Maybe it would be something like, you know, uh, the critical thinking uh course which we'll talk about a little bit later and uh, there's an easter egg at the very end for those watching you can uh, pick up a link that i'll have in the show notes too but there'll be something i'll talk about at the end if i can make sure and fit it in here so today is a busy packed day for me uh, but i wanted to keep in this stride of getting the bio war series out i am considering doing a show that is numbered that will start like on a more of a I'm just trying to find the right container, the right name, right? It'll be in the same website, same um, tylerbloyer.com style, but I may start a series where I'm covering a general topic and that could be the creature of control, but we may even just like take it up, niche up in, into what the information is that we put out in the future. Um, again, so last episode, I did take the time to go through and sort of recover or re-go over the things that we've been talking about as far as the most critical documents. So we can refer back to that and we'll do that from time to time moving forward to be able to do like a high level overview of the more critical parts. But in essence of uh, moving this episode forward, what we are going to be doing now is jumping into gene wars uh, we've read a few excerpts from this this actually showed up uh, a few weeks back during one of the live streams and uh, this book had been recommended from quite a few outlets on this particular type of research this book is uh, keith r yamamoto and charles pilar uh, from 1988 and i have the book here on my desk <coughs> So we can pull it up and look through it live together. And uh, again, military control over new genetic technologies. I'm not sure if this is a first edition. It it said that it was from 1988. It was 2295 back then. And in in December 1987, when the leaders of the two most powerful nations in the nuclear club agreed to destroy the whole class of nuclear weapons the world breathed deeply and felt a sigh of relief but can the balance of terror be tipped only by the atomic weapons gene wars confronts the new realities of biological warfare a threat as frightening in its potential for human and ecological harm as the bomb and where nuclear power unleashed the destructive force of matter the pentagon's biological research promotes the weaponized the weaponization of the stuff of life itself. Gene Wars presents the lethal, the lethal life, life sciences, the promise of new bio, biological and genetic technologies for the cures and super vaccines for our most ancient and persistent illnesses has a dark side. The discoveries of more efficient bioprocesses that have come from DNA research. It does say flip to the back, but that's, you know, we'll, we'll read the back cover next time we come to Gene Wars. How about that? And uh, the section that I wanted to jump to here was page 116 through 117. The offensive defensive tautology. The DOD has often stated, let me grab my pointer pen here and we'll zoom in and get me out of the way. 
and hit, uh, let's see, focus. It's a little out of focus there, isn't it? There we go. I was late to the stream today because I had to find this light that I had uh, misplaced since the last stream. So again, reading here from Gene Wars, page 116. The offensive-defensive tautology. The DOD has often stated that its biotechnology research, like the rest of its biological warfare program, is completely and properly defensive in nature. In light of the above concerns in a generally unstable arms control climate, can that, uh, can that claim to be taken at face value? The answer lies largely in the relationship between offensive and defensive efforts in biological warfare. To a degree greater than other weapon systems, nearly all aspects of offensive and defensive research of development pertaining to biological weapons are identical. Even the military makes no attempt to dispute the fact. Quote, it all comes down to intent. With technology plus intent, you can do great or good or great harm. Unquote. William Beisel, former director of biological weapons research at Fort Detrick, said in 1984. Quote, we're there, good guys. We're wearing the white hats. Unquote. He added, quote, we're physicians using our DNA to create new things in medicine. It's the Russians who may be using our DNA for evil, unquote. So reassuring a statement deserves a second look. Coming, at as it, coming as it does from one of the more Stranglovian characters the army has produced, Basil presided over the resting of offense biological weapons agents on the volunteers of Operations White Coat before it was discontinued in the early 1970s. Quote, what we were to learn this morning was that the, we would be injected with ex exotoxins, a bacteria toxin, unquote, read the letter of the white coat participant, quote, this time both a nurse and Lieutenant Colonel Beisel of the Army Medical Corps were present at the injection. He injected the needle deep into my vein and told me that shortly I should have some dye deep into my vein and told me that shortly I should have some reaction. I read that line twice, sorry. Within an hour, the top of my head felt like all the gremlins in Hadar were inside trying to emerge by hitting the underside of my skull with a sledgehammer. At Beisel's, un unquote. At Beisel's statements demonstrates defense efforts predicted... Uh, sorry, let me read that again. At Beisel's statement demonstrates defensive efforts predicated... A mist on mistrust are sure to lead to mistrust. It would hardly be surprising, given the mistrust, that they could logically be expected to feel that Dr. Bezels of the United States, the Soviets were boost. Uh, sorry, said uh, for the Dr. Bezel of the United States, the Soviets were boosting their biological weapons research program. The program with defensive research, however, go beyond doubts about good faith. The concepts of, quote, defensive, unquote, research in itself is a fundamental misrepresentation. Table 6 summarizes the, basis, the basic features of biological weapons research. And here we have Table 6, Features of Biological 
weapons research program, microorganisms, basic and applied research on a wide range of candidate agents, test facilities, highly contained access to animal models, delivery vehicle, ability to test some combination of anthropods, bombs, missiles, aerosols, or water contamination, countermeasures, development of vaccine, antibodies, and other prolific or or, uh, prophylactic or therapeutic measures, protective clothing, and other physical barriers, well-trained personnel for detection and protection, decan and decam uh, decontamination procedures, and then finally here on the table of features of a biological weapons research program, detection, development of lab and field methods for detection, confirmation, as well as alarm systems. So continuing on here. Each feature, and this is from the section, the offensive and defensive tautology. Each feature is essential for both developing and protecting against biological weapons. Viral vaccine research and development, a major thrust of the DOD biotechnology program, demonstrates the point. Before the existing viral pathogen or newly created mutant could be manufactured as a weapon, a vaccine must be developed to protect troops that would use the weapon as well as researchers and technicians who would handle it in the lab. A mass produ- or and mass produce it. In the case of quote defensive unquote vaccine program, a, na- a nation would naturally try to get to target viral agents suspected to have been developed as weapons by the an enemy. I mean, clearly, you know that's what they always say, right? We have to uh, develop this and study it because the enemy would have it otherwise, and uh, you know, in that case, we have to study this. The development, quote, the development of the defensive vaccine will in general involve the isolation, identification, modification, and growth of the potential biological weapons agent, unquote. According to the article by King, his MIT colleague, Harley Strauss, quote, studies of the vaccine efficiency, uh, efficacy would have to be carried out requiring experience exposing test animals and perhaps humans to the agent. These steps, the generation of a potential biological weapons agent, development of a vaccine against it, testing of the efficacy of the vaccine, are all uh, components that would be associated with an offensive biological weapons program. It is not that the programs appear similar, it is that they share similar components." All right, reading ahead just a little bit here on page 118. I was going to stop, but I I think this is also just interesting to keep reading into the record. If a research team looked at a virus for such factors as a a biomechanical, uh, sorry, starting again, and we're on page 118 of Gene Wars here. If a research team looked at a virus for such factors as its uh, biochemical mechanism of action, the routes through which it is infective, whether it can be made resistant to drugs and its stability in storage, this work might be considered defensive. How can an agent be defended against if its essential characteristics are unknown? 
yet these are also major factors for an offensive inquiry. If a vaccine were successfully, successfully developed, a defensive program might then move to a mass-produce and stockpile it, as the United States has done in a number of cases. Clearly, any nation planning a biological weapons attack would have likewise, would do likewise. But this is where the logic of defense doubles back on itself. The value of a vaccine is negligible. Before, even before our DNA technology increased the number of potential threats against exponentially, it was impossible for medical, logistical, and financial reasons to vaccinate all soldiers and civilians against all potential biological weapons. And once used, vaccines invariably have an incubation period before they confer immunity. Many vaccines cannot be easily stockpiled in large quantities or administered in short notice. For vaccines to be used effectively, the defenders would have to know with absolute certainty which agents would be used weeks or months in advance before the attack, obviously an impossible prediction. At the time, biological weapons vaccine research is inherently suspicious. Vaccine manufacturing may easily camouflage biological weapons production. Although, quote, the typical vaccine plant is inadequate for the production of a fully military capable capability, it would be adequate for the production of the quantities required for a sabotage attack or the kind of low-grade capability that might be sought by a country in the face of military defeat or frustration, unquote. An SIPRI study noted in 1972, quote, Some common forms of vaccine production are very close, technically, to the production of CBW agents, and so offer easy opportunities for conversion, unquote. These observations are even more meaningful today in light of the advances of biological weapons technology. It is worth noting that the Japanese biological weapons program during World War II was operated under the guise of, quote, water purification and, quote, vaccine production, unquote. Although the Americans' occupation force helped keep the program secret, for more than 30 years, these labels lent credibility to Japanese denials of their heinous attacks on the Chinese experiments of human guinea pigs. Quote, a defensive CBW program not supported by an offensive program can be well worthless, unquote. What General William Greasy, head of the U.S. Army Chemical Corps, told the Congress Committee in 1958, quote, you cannot ho know how to defend against something unless you can visualize various methods with which uh, can be used against you. So you can be living in a fool's paradise if you do not have a vigorous munitions and um, dissemination type program. Unquote. Creasy's basic position was that the study of prototype agents and munitions is essential to legitimate CBW defense and been adopted by his successors. The words prototype and biological weapon tend to blanch the average citizen and then and thus have been avoided by the DOD, spokespersons in recent years. Yet the multitude of government reports, interviews, and congressional hearings, Christie's position has consistently been quietly affirmed. And we've quietly affirmed that here in the bio war. Absolutely. And if you looked at that, you know, Fauci speaking for the like the 20 minutes that we played him, 
um, in a few episodes back. It's the same story now, and the sa- they're saying the exact same thing now, even at the risk of, um, you know, basically destroying the whole planet and all the, not the whole planet, but, uh, you know, killing all of us and maybe not in ways that are going to be all that uh, pleasing <laughs> or fun. None of this sounds fun. And I know uh, I don't do the best job at lightening the mood, but let's just read ahead here. Uh, Keeping along those lines and what we'll be talking about later today with these justifications that we're reading about, um, we're also going to continue on with the gene wars here, just now on page 217. Okay. And uh, actually... Let me let me just pull ahead a little bit on page 216 to make sure there's enough context. The review of the NRC panelists suggests a serious... Okay, actually skipping down. In addition to a contract program, a large portion of Defense Department biological research is conducted in military labs. Charles Daze, AMRIID spokesperson, described the process the Army uses to evaluate in-house studies... Review follows the chain of command, Daisy said. After receiving directives from the highest military leaders, the commanders of the AMRDC provides his priorities, such as vaccines or drugs for particular threats agents. He then assigns projects to the labs under the jurisdiction, including AMRIID, according to their capability and budget constraints. The Army requires an annual evaluation of each study conducted by division leaders and lab directors. In some cases, the review extends farther up the chain of command. Work considered fruitfully normal receives renewed support, while projects that seem unproductive may be cut off. The AMRDC retains a 100 consultants, university professors who are chosen by the directors of the lab to review information in-house studies for a um, for AMRIID, therefore, Colonel David Huxall might be might find experts in broad spectrums, antiviral drugs, and major interests in the lab. These independent consultants would then be approved by the higher authorities, uh, but their role is extensively limited. Called in the discretion of the lab director, a consultant may be used monthly, yearly, or less. When the consultant's advice is, solici- advice is solicited, it is just that advice. It is just that advice. Consultants have no formal power to review or evaluate in-house work. The Army Science Board of the Defense Science Board, which, according to Daisy, consists uh, Daisy consists of the well, quote, well-credited experts, unquote, periodically review of the brand AMRDC program and strategy. They have studied problems in general interest to the biological weapons research program, such as yellow rain. These boards do not, however, engage in the routine detailed evaluation of individual studies. In sum, the AMRDC benefits from no meaningful independent appraisal of short-range strategies of specific experiments. Perhaps more important, the chain of command system, while suitable for many military activities, possesses inherent quality control pitfalls for biological research. Division superintendent lab director, the highest level bureaucrats, are subject to inevitable conflicts of interest, preserving prestige or jobs, misplaced institutional loyalty, or fear of reprimand could stimulate an appropriate protection of the overall thrust of the specific decisions governing their research programs. 
truly independent peer review as noted above advocates each of these problems king who has chaired the microbial psychological study section for the nih believes that without intensive independent scrutiny the pentagon is free to obscure its true goals quote the defense department appears to be pursuing many narrow applied goals that are by nature offensive, such as the genetic improvement of biological weapons agents, King says. But to achieve political acceptability, they mask these intentions of for and form. Uh, they mask these intentions under forms of research, such as vaccine vaccine development, which is um, which sound defensive. Reading reading that again for emphasis. Uh, this is King um, and King, who has chaired the microbial psychological study section for the NIH believes that without intensive independent scrutiny the Pentagon is free to obscure its true goals and I have highlighted here and he quotes the defense department department appears to be pursuing many narrow applied goals that are by nature offensive such as genetic improvement of biological weapon agents King says quote but to achieve political acceptability they mask these intentions under forms of research such as vaccine development which sound defensive this convoluted process inevitably results in poor quality research moreover these studies pollute the scientific literature by promoting false irrelevant directions in this way they may serve to blur real scientific problems important to the overall welfare of society King sees to the current biological weapons research program as primarily concerned with recruiting scientific talent, increasing in-house capabilities in genetic engineering, and finding out what is technology feasible. Quote, military planners are not particularly concerned with the highest quality of research at this stage, he says. Quote, if, if and when they move on to the actual weapons development, the review process will improve dramatically. They fully realize that without rigorous evaluation at that stage, their systems would fail in the field, unquote. All right, so we'll leave that there for now and uh, give a little bit of commentary on what we just read. So the gene wars, again, going back to really there being no difference in offensive versus uh, defensive biological weapons research and in fact the people who know and need the grants and need to be able to continue the research in these fields uh, or want to continue they may be obsessed as we find in the case with like uh, Heinrich Himmler and Eric Traub uh, you know seemingly being obsessed with the, the black plague and the bubonic plague uh, plagues which um, attempt or seemingly target a particular gen genotype or a uh, a particular uh, race-specific types of uh, plague that can be then studied in the lab. But beyond that, we see that, you know, they could just say, well, it's a uh, vaccine research. And after the biological weapons um, treaties and other things in the, in the 70s and the 80s, this, this outward offensive biological weapons research actually after world war ii s simmered down into more defensive now we're studying the vaccines but really i mean do you think the military is only going to study the one side of the equation and not study the other side of the equation again you know what, what we're uncovering here in the series is to show that no they definitely have been 
studying this in an offensive type fashion. It's not just for vaccines, but we do notice that there is this circular or, you know, uh, infinite loop type thing going on where there's a, you know, swinging door thing. There's, there's people on one side of the equation making products and uh, therapeutics and gene therapy products. And on the other side of this, they're creating biological weapons and studying how they would be affected by aerosolizing them. And if you're in the middle of that vortex, right, you, you, ha you stand to be able to, you know, not only be extremely, like they were saying there in the gene wars, stand in conflict of interest, but also profit and become, uh, you know, not become, but like you, you'll be easily corrupted and all the signs will be telling you, though, that this is the right thing to do because, you know, of the research is so important to con continue on in the name of national security. And, uh, you know, if we don't do it, the Russians will. And so why not? And so you see this sort of logic and this uh, this uh, pragmatic way of approaching these issues tends to lead to more destruction. And we see now with uh, the release of the SARS-CoV-2, uh, again, whether you want to call it an accidental release or something that was done intentionally, uh, just give me one sec here. Sorry about that. My, my daughter's walked in and she wants to hang out with me here for a minute. So I guess that's okay. But you can't sit on my lap, sweetie. <laughs> uh, today there's a lot going on in the house. So uh, it's possible that there's just others that are distracted at the moment. And so again, I got distracted on what I was saying, but we'll continue on. So with Operation Paperclip is what we're going to go into next. The uh, Annie Jacobson book the secret intelligence program that brought the Nazi scientists to America. <laughs> Sorry, I was just taking care of that still with my daughter. So anyways, um, let's see if I can catch what I was saying a, a minute ago. Now, with, with that sort of reasoning, you could say, well, that makes perfect sense then, Tyler. Like, what's the problem? And maybe I'm, you know, maybe I shouldn't be um, scrutinizing or looking at this as something like I'm judging it. I, again, uh, what I've tried to do here for the most part is just review the information that's available. There's some, been some commentary. There's been some theorizing from myself. There's been claims made, but it, it it's something that I like to do uh, is, is, you know, think, tease things out a little bit and look at the information that's available. Again, we're not far reaching here with any of the things that have been said or made or said or done or, or what, what we're attempting to do though, which would be more of like an expectation thing is perhaps people would be able to see some of this information or hear of it and then, you know, question things a little bit more rather than just a, believe the mainstream narrative 100% or B say, you know, it's all, there's just nothing going on here, guys. Come on. We don't have to be worried about nothing. You should just, you know, just continue to live and don't like, I agree that you shouldn't like completely change your behavior just because everybody else is. And, uh, if you look at the psychology of crowds and Gustav Le Bon's book, uh, the psychology of crowds and, you know, um, pr propaganda, uh, 
Edward Bernays, uh, th this type of information on how crowd psychology works. I, I get that too. And I'm not saying that we should just also, you know, just do what other people do or just rebel against what other people are doing just because they're doing it. But rather, you know, when you look at people like Anthony Fauci or you look at people like Bill Gates and you start to connect some of the ties back to these studies or this information that I'm uncovering here in the BioSci War, you have to question then why they're not telling you this in the mainstream or, you know, I, I hate to use the cliche over and over again, but if in the general sense of where they're on the public stage and they're not talking about these things, they're not telling you about the, the fact that they know that they've been funding and researching these viruses and trying to gain a function them in the lab and that it's worth it for the vaccine research. They're just telling you like, we don't know. We knew it was going to happen. This thing just sprung out of a, a wet lab in China and it just popped out of there. And so, you know, again, we knew it was going to happen. And here we are ready with all the vaccines, you know, as we covered last week with, you know, DARPA and BARDA funding the Moderna vaccines beforehand. And if you look at the history of these other vaccine manufacturers, you have to wonder, you know, how they had so much information about this particular type of virus that would come out. Now, coronaviruses in other countries around the world have been common, and in fact, they've felt dealt with them before and had to fight them before. Um, in, in, in some Asian countries, in Japan uh, or China, wearing a mask not only for the, um, the air pollution problems, but for problems of disease, problems of uh, things being spread around, haven't been anything new. Uh, but in, in this case, with the whole uh, greater reset or the, sorry, the great reset and, you know, event 201. And before that, you had other things like lockstep and the Rockefeller Foundation and just the way that the unification of the event. In fact, we had a document um, called it was the discernment between deliberate and natural infectious disease outbreaks. And they had some things in there about how to discern, you know, between, and th this is from the ncbinih.gov, you know, website. And they had several key points in there about like how to predict a fake pandemic versus a real pandemic. And some of the points were like uh, the way that it spreads and the pattern and if it's global and if it's sudden and novel and you know there were clues in there one that might pertain today that i'll just read i'll just read it into the record really quick would be uh clue number 10 uh and this is f again from the section in this book called uh potential Epidemiolo epidemiological clues to a deliberate epidemic, right? And these are all interesting. And we read this in like episode two or three of the BioSci War. And uh, like here, mul multiple epidemics, multiple perpetrators in collaboration could release a single biological agent in various locations. With the same or multiple organisms, one should consider an unnatural source. So if it's breaking out all over the place, right? And then clue number 10, 
downward plume patterns. It is useful to plot locations where cases occur on a geographic grid or map. If affected cases are clustered in a downwind pattern, an aerosol release should be considered. This was recognized in 1979 anthrax outbreak, outbreak in Ferd and an instrument in determining that the cases were caused by an aerosol rather than a contaminated food source. So there's all these in here um, reasons why something might be unnatural versus a natural outbreak, and they're they're all pretty interesting. And a lot of them do kind of tick off what's going on with uh, coronavirus. All right. So while we're over here, let's just pull open the next thing that we're going to read from today that I. I've talked about a little bit already, and that is Annie Jacobson's book, Operation Paperclip. We have read about the eight ball in this book from uh, last week or two weeks ago. We learned about the eight ball, and that was a Fort Detrick aerosolized uh, biological weapons research facility where they would put people in it, put test subjects in it, put animals in it, and be able to spray aerosols and different bacteria and inject things into the air and measure, you know, the effects. And it would obviously probably be quite problematic in some cases for the people that were being experimented on. But nevertheless, that was done, and we learned about that. And uh, we're just going to be reading today from uh, page 75 at first, uh, 75 through 77. So a bit of a read here. And uh, let's start here. In Munich on May 17th, 1945, U.S. soldiers at the checkpoint were conducting a routine identification request when a well-dressed man, 134 pounds, 5 foot 9, with the dark black hair and hazel eyes and a pronounced dueling scar on his left side of his face between his nose and his upper lip, presented a German passport bearing the name Professor Dr. Friedrich Ludwig Kurt Blom. I guess that was fine. I was just seeing if I was zoomed in all the way. Dr. Blom's name triggered an alert. Quote, immediate arrest, first priority, unquote. Samuel Goudsmit the entire, and the entire team of biological warfare experts with Operation Ulcers had been on the hunt for Dr. Blom. Agent Arnold Vith with the Army's Counterintelligence Corps made an arrest. Agent Vith completed the necessary paperwork while the prisoners were processed, uh, was processed. Dr. Blum was sent to the 12th Army Group Interrogation Center for questioning. Several days later, a document arrived via teletype from the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, America's Wartime Espionage, Espionage Agency, and the precursor to the CIA. They, they too had been searching for Dr. Blum. The War Crimes Office had been consulted Oh, sorry. The wartime's office had a considerable information about Dr. Kurt Blom. He was a de deputy surgeon general at the Third Reich and vice president of the Reich's Physician League, Reich's uh, Schriftenkammer. He was believed to have reported directly to Goring, uh, yeah, to Goring, and maybe to Himmler or to both. Blom had been named head of the Reich Cancer Research in 1942. Also's on OSS presumed that this was to cover name a cover name for the biological weapons work. Blum was a dedicated and proud Nazi. His book Artsy I'm Kampf, Doctor in Battle, 
compared a doctor's struggle with the struggle of the Third Reich soldier. Officers and doctors weren't all that different, each constantly in battle against invading forces and disease. Investigators were trying to piece together the labyrinth of medical hierarchy of the Third Reich and as, uh, so as to understand who was in charge of what organizations. Particularly interesting to the interrogators was the fact that Dr. Kurt Blum had been part of a top-tier group of the Nazi doctors who focused on hygiene. This word connotated disease control, or yeah, disease control, but was also believed to have been used by the Reich as a euphemism for ethnic cleansing and, and extermination of Jews. Also, it was in possession, uh, uh, sorry, also was in possession of correspondences between Blom and Himmler that discussed giving certain groups of sick individuals in the case of uh, tubercular poles, uh, quote, special treatment. Reading on, what exactly did special treatment mean? At the time of Blom's capture and interrogation, Allied intelligence agencies believed that there was only one physician higher than Blom in the hierarchy of the Reich Hygiene Committee, and that was the notorious Reich's health leader, uh, the Reichstofenglaufenherher, <laughs> Leonardo Conti. Like, seriously, what is that word there? <laughs> Dr. Blom spoke fluent English with his first army interrogator. He described himself as a quote, good Nazi, unquote, obedient and promised that he was willing to cooperate with the Allies. At first, his interrogators were thrilled by the prospect of learning more about Reich medicine and such a big fish as Dr. Blom. Why was he, quote, why was he cooperating, Blom was asked. Or that wasn't a quote, but, uh, quote, I can improve I can approve the way the new advances in the medical sciences have been used for atrocities unquote declared Dr. B Blum. What kind of atrocities Blum and Blum's investigators wanted to know. Blum stated that his capacity as deputy surgeon general of the Reich, he had quote observed new scientific studies and experiments which had led to later atrocities e.g. mass sterilization, gassing of Jews unquote. It was an astonishing admission. Until Blom gave up this information so, so freely, no physician under the inner circle had admitted to having known about such wide-scale atrocities as mass murder and sterilization programs. That Blom was willing to talk was extremely promising news. Blom was, quote, cooperative and intelligent, unquote, noted his interrogators. Most important, he was, quote, willing to supply information, unquote. But the U.S. investigators' excitement did not last long. By his next interrogations, Dr. Kurt Blom had shut down entirely. He was told his interrogators' officers, sorry, he told his interrogating officer, Major E. W. B. Gill, that he only had ever been an administrator for the Reich, and he had not done anything hands-on, unquote. Major Gill pressed Blom for information about his direct superior, Dr. Leonardo Conti. Blum said he knew nothing about Conti's job. Quote, when I was pointed out that 
when I pointed out that the deputy must presumably know something about his chief's job, Major Gill, uh, unquote, Major Gill wrote in his report, quote, he said the organization was extremely complicated and really he would like to draw me a diagram of it, unquote. Gill lost his temper, quote, I told Blum I didn't want a damn diagram, but, but an answer to a simple question. How did he take Conti's place if he, Conti, were absent or ill, or if he knew nothing about the job, unquote. Blum repeated his position, that it was all too complicated to explain to a man like Major Gill. Outraged by the sidestepping, Gill kept at it, but at the time of Blum's also's interrogations, Major Gill had been unable to give a scrap of new information from Blum, unable to get it from Blum. He claimed he had never had heard of the major majority of the names of the fellow doctors that Major Gill had asked him about. Instead, Blum assisted that he knew nothing about the medical chain of command inside the Third Reich or the SS, despite the fact that he had personally met with Himmlers five times since 1943. Gill asked how Blum's, quote, cancer expert, unquote, had been put in charge of the Reich's bioweapons program, a subject he had claimed to know very little about. Blum said that he had no answer for that. Quote, on my suggestion that the most important branch of war research would not be assigned to a complete ignoramus, he, after endless explanations of the complexity of the German word, finally said it must have been as an undergraduate, but he wrote biological weapons and his thesis for a doctorate, unquote. Major Gill felt for a certain time for certain that Dr. Blum was lying, but there was nothing he could do except present Blum with the information and evidence that also he had compiled about him since they had seized Dr. Eugene Hagen's apartment six months before. All right. Now, that's interesting on uh, Blum and his uh, interrogation there and his ability to, you know, kind of skirt around the questions. And also the fact that he had initially started off kind of spilling the beans, as they said there, and then sort of, uh, you know, backed off and went back into more of a, I'm not sure, I, I don't exactly know. And, uh, you know, they, they found throughout their research there that there was quite a bit of code words and operations of things being said. Oh, you know, it's, uh, it's hygiene studies and things like that. When they were really, you know, learning how to kill people with more advanced weapons and uh, biological weapons and chemical weapons, they called that hygiene. Uh, reading here on page 159 uh, through 160 on in uh, Operation Paperclip. In 1945, the Chemical Warfare Service was was also in charge of the U.S. Biological Weapons Program the existence of which remained secret from the American public. The program was robust. If the atomic bomb failed to end the war in Japan, there was a plan in motion to wage biological warfare against Japanese crops. After the fall of the Reich, the staff of the Chemical Warfare Services began interrogating Hitler's biological weapons makers, many of whom were interned in at Dustbin, the Chemical Warfare Service saw enormous potential in making the Nazis' biological weapons program its own and sought any scientific intelligence it could to get uh, that it could to get it. The main the man 
most wanted in this effort was Hitler's top biological weapons expert, Dr. Kurt Blom. In 19... On, uh, sorry, on June 29, 1945, Blum was sent to Dustbin. The officers assigned to interrogate him were Bill Cromarty and J.M. Barnes of the Operation Alsos. Each man was uniquely familiar with Blum's background. Cromarty had been in Dr. Eugene Higgins' apartment in Stroudsburg in November 1944, when he and Alsos scientists... Director Samuel Goldsmith made an awful discovery that the Reich had been experimenting on people during the war. Blom was then named in the Hagen files, and it was Cromarty and Barnes who led the investigation of the Gerberg facility, the abandoned, curious-looking research outpost hidden in the Thuringian forest. Uh, just checking some of the tech here. You are watching the Bio War, and we are currently reading from the uh, Operation Paperclip from Annie Jacobson, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. And we're reading here a little bit about Blom and the discoveries of the uh, different materials that they had found linking the research that they were doing to the biological weapons research and uh, various things like that. If anybody in the chat wants to give me a yes, sounds good, looks good uh, feedback, that would help me just know that things are rolling nice and smooth. Appreciate all those who do watch the show live. It's more meant to archive the information for the long term and not necessarily to collect a live audience. But if you do have a pressing question on what we're talking about or want to make a comment, you can also hop into the Discord server. All right, so enough with the uh, commercial midway through, and we'll just continue on here reading uh, from page 159. During the initial interview at Dustbin, Blum refused to cooperate. Quote, when he was first interrogated, he was very evasive, unquote. Cromarty and Barnes wrote, but a few days later, when interrogated in more detail, Blum's, quote, attitude changed completely when he was seemed anxious to give the full account not only of what he actually did, but what he actually had in mind for the future work, unquote. Cromarty and uh, Barnes were unsure if they, let me just put my bookmark here, were unsure if they should be enthused by Blum's seemingly change of heart or suspicious of it. Blum had been observed in the dustbin eating all of the conversations at length with Dr. Heinrich Gluey and Reich's counterintelligence agents of bacterial warfare concerns. Perhaps the two men were uh, conciding a misinformation scheme. During the war, Dr. Cluey's job had been to monitor biological weapons progress being made in Germans by Germans by Germany's enemies, most notably Russia. Quote, Cluey's claims that he himself did not did all of the evaluating of the reports received and determined what course of action his department should thenceforth t follow. Unquote. Investigators wrote in Cluey's Dublin. Uh, I've never seen that. Like, thenceforth? Maybe I don't do enough reading. <laughs> well, this is also helping me with my live reading skills, doing the bio war and uh, getting this nice uh, book cam here. 
And a lot of the time when I'm stumbling and fumbling, it's because I look up and think of something. Oh, what about this? And I think of something and then I fumble. And I know to everybody right now, they're like, it's super annoying. Why don't you just keep reading? So continue reading. We will. Starting back at the top of that paragraph. During the war, Dr. Cluey's job had been to monitor bioweapons progress being made by Germany's enemies, most notably Russia. Quote, Cluey's claims that he himself did all the evaluating of the reports received and determined what course of action his department would, should thenceforth follow, unquote. Investigators wrote in Cluey's dustbin dossier, Cluey told Blom that he would likely be taken to Heidenberg for the lengthy interrogations with Alsos agents and Cluey had, and Cluey had been. Uh, if Cromarty and Barnes were surprised by Blom's sudden willingness to talk, they were also aware that most of what he told them could be independently verified. Quote, it is quite impossible to check many of his statements, and what follows is an account of what he related, unquote, read a note in Blom's dustbin dossier. What Blom recounted was a dark tale of plans for biological warfare spearheaded by Heinrich Himmler. Hein Himmler had a layman's fascination with biological warfare, a former chicken farmer, the Reichenfuhrer SS had studied agriculture in school. According to Blum, it was Himmler who was the primary motivator behind the Reich's weapon, bioweapons program. Hitler's, uh, Hitler, Blum said, did not approve of biological warfare, and he kept it in the dark as to, a, as to specific plan, plans. Himmler's area of greatest fascination, said Blum, was the bubonic plague. On April 30th, 1943, Goring had created the cancer research post that was to be held by Blom. Over the next 13 months, Blom explained to me that with Himmler's, uh, explained he met with Himmler five times. At their first meeting, which occurred in the summer of 1943, Blom recalled as it as being July or August, Himmler ordered Blum to study the various dissemination methods of plague bacteria for offensive warfare. According to Blum, he shared with Himmler his fears regarding the dangerous boomerang effects a plague bomb would most likely have on Germany. Himmler told Blum that in that case, he should get to work immediately to produce a vaccine to prevent such a thing. To expedite vaccine research, Blum said, Himmler ordered him, quote, to use human beings, unquote. So you could see, though, the same reasoning, right, that uh, he was at, at least pretending to uh, get Blum motivated there in this account, you know, which is third hand and now written in a book later. But, you know, in general, the sense of that justification coming through as the way to justify being able to continue on with this sort of research, right? and then get others to go along with that just reasoning and justification. And I'm not making a moral judgment of it or not. I'm just recognizing the fact that it's there. Himmler offered Blum a medical block at a concentration camp like Dauch, uh, Dachau, or so whatever it says, where he could complete the work. Blum said that Hitler, or told Himmler, he was aware of, quote, strong objections to certain uh, circles, unquote, to using humans in experimental vaccine trials. Himmler told Blum that experimenting on humans was necessary in the war effort to refuse what, uh, to refuse was, quote, the equivalent of treason. 
Very well, said Blom. He considered himself a loyal Nazi, and it was his intention to help Germany win the war. Quote, history gives us examples of human disease affecting the outcomes of wars, unquote, Blum told his also's interrogators, taking a moment to lecture them on history. Quote, we know that from antiquity up until the time of the Napoleonic Wars, victories and defeats were often determined by the epidemics and starvation, unquote, Blum said. Spreading an infectious disease could bring about the most demise, could bring about the demise of the marauding army and blum was said that the failure of napoleon's russian came uh, campaign was quote due in great part to the infections of his horses with glanders unquote a highly contagious bacterial disease history aside blum said that he counseled himmler on the fact that the concentration camps was a terrible place to experiment on the bubonic plague because the population was too dense. Blum then told Hitler that if he was to experiment with plague bacterium, he would need his own institute, an isolated facility far removed from the population centers. Himmler and Blum agreed that Poland would be a good place, and they settled on the Nislestik, a small town outside of the former Poznari University, by then operated by the Reich. Blom's research institute was to be called the Bacterial, uh, the Bacteriological Institute at Nesselstek. Nesselstek. In the interim, okay, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that gets the point that I wanted to read there. Now let's just jump back to. Uh, let's go to page 230. Read a section out of that in the book um, Operation Paperclip from Annie Jacobson. Okay. Dr. Kurt Blum's expertise was on great demand, but his future was yet undecided. In his post in laboratory, Blum had made a considerable progress with live plague pathogens, including bubonic and pneumonic plague. How far could that research progress remained vague, likely because it was put on an unwanted spotlight on human experiments many believed had taken place there. Blums repeatedly told investigators that he intended to conduct human trials but never actually did. Blum's Americans' counterparts in wartime's plagues weapons research was a left-leaning bacteriologist named Dr. Theodore Rosebury. During the war, the biological weapons work Rosebury conducted was so highly classified that it was considered as a secret as, atom as, secret as atomic research. He had worked at a research facility outside Washington, D.C. called Camp Dietrich. It was like Posen only bigger. Dietrich had 2,273 personnel working on top-secret biological warfare programs. Like Blum, Rosenberry worked on bubonic plague. Rosenberry's colleagues worked on 199 other germ bomb projects, including anthrax, spore reproduction plant, and animal disease, and insect research, in an effort to determine which bugs were the most effective carriers of certain diseases. 
Almost no one in America had any idea that the U.S. Army had been developing biological weapons until January 3rd, 1946, when the War Department released a slim, sanitized government monograph called the Merck Report. That is, that is when the American public learned, for the first time, that the government's top-secret program had been, quote, cloaked in the deepest wartime secrecy matched only to the Manhattan Project for developing the atomic bomb, unquote. The rationale behind developing these kinds of weapons, the public was told, was the same as it was as it had been with the American wartime chemical weapons program. If the Nazis had used biological weapons agents to kill Allied soldiers, the U.S. military would have been prepared to retaliate in kind. Yes, the war was over. Americans were now told, but unfortunately, there was a new and emerging threat out there. The Merck Report warned, an invisible and insidious evil capable of killing millions on a vast unknowable scale. Americans' biological or bioweapons program needed to continue. The Merck Report made it clear. <laughs> Americans may have won the war with the mighty atomic bomb, but biological weapons were the poor man's nuclear weapon. Biological weapons could be made just about in any country, quote, without vast expenditures of money or the construction of huge production facilities, unquote. A bioweapon could be hidden under, quote, under the guise of legitimate medical or bacteriological research, unquote, the report said. The Merck report was written by, doc by George W. Merck, a 40-year-old chemist, and the owner of Merck & Co., a pharmaceutical manufacturer in New Jersey. Merck had served Presidents Roosevelt and Truman as civilian head of the U.S. biological warfare effort during the war. Merck & Co. made and sold vaccines, notably the first commercial U.S. smallpox vaccine in 1998, or sorry, 1898. And in 1942, the manufactured penicillin G among the first general antibiotics. During World War II, U.S. soldiers received smallpox vaccinations. The man diagnosing the bioweapons threat, George Merck, was also the man whose company, whose company might sell the government the solution to combat the threat. So that's what I was saying earlier, right, where they're, they're studying... Um, the biological weapons aspect of it and also able to turn around and create the vaccine to sell it on the market. How, how great is that? In 1946, this was not looked upon with the same kind of scrutiny. It might be a decade. It's not looked at with scrutiny now either. <laughs> Ain't nobody scrutiny looking at nothing now. <laughs> you know, sorry to get off on a tangent, but I mean, it's no different now. There's nobody looking at this stuff with scrutiny now. And they're just rolling it out, warp speed style, baby. Uh, so let's just read that again. The man diagnosing the bioweapons threat, George Merck, was also the man whose company might sell the government the solution to combat the threat. In 1946, this was not looked upon the same with the same kind of scrutiny as it might have been decades later because American military industrial complex had yet to be broadly revealed. The Merck Report did not specify what kind of germ warfare had been researched and developed by the United States, only that it took place at a top-secret top facility, quote, in Maryland, unquote. 
Camp Dietrich was a 154-acre land parcel surrounded by cow fields about an hour's drive north of Washington and under the jurisdiction of the former Chemical Warfare Service, then the Chemical Corps. After the release of the Merck report, and coupled with the ominous, quote, total war prospects, unquote, as outlined in the Clifford Report and the JCS 1696, Congress would grant vast sums of money to the Chemical Corps for biological weapons research, and Dietrich would expand exponentially. Dr. Kurt Blom had information that was coveted by the bacteriologic, uh, bacteriologists at Fort Detrick, and plans were being drawn up to interview him. And then in the summer of 1946, a totally unexpected occurrence inside the Palace of Justice in Nuremberg that would render hiring Dr. Kurt Blom for Operation Paperclip an impossibility. At least for now, in the tenth month of the trial, the Soviets presented a surprise witness, putting an unforeseen, unwelcomed focus on Dr. Kurt Blom. The witness was a Major General Walter Schreiber, the shield to Blom's sword. So, indeed, Kurt Blom was brought in under Operation Paperclip and uh, studied biological weapons at Fort Detrick uh, in Maryland. And here I'll just read uh, from page 275 of Operation Paperclip. As for Dr. Blom, he was seen as a highly desirable recruit for Operation Paperclip. Blom allegedly knew more about the bubonic plague research than anyone else in the world. But given the former position in Hitler's inner circle, coupled by the fact that Blom had worn the Golden Party badge, bringing him to America was part of op as part of Operation Paperclip remained too difficult for the U.S. Army to justify. But as the Cold War gained momentum and intense suspicion of the Soviets increased, even someone like Kurt Blom would eventually be deemed eligible for Operation Paperclip. Very interesting. All right. So that brings us further along in the Biosci War and our understanding of offensive versus defensive versus uh, biological weapons research versus vaccinations research and even cancer research being actual covers or just excuses and guises for uh, biological weapons offensive research. And we look at what they're doing now all the way up to the modern day, which we'll get into a little bit later in this episode. Um, but we're, we're going to need to get more into some of the aerosolized techniques as we've talked, uh, titled this episode, Aerosolized Innovations here in the Biosci War. But, you know, learning about how Operation Paperclip imported Nazi scientists mainly to gather uh, their scientific research. Now, they, there could have been other things, maybe particular rubbers that they had, um, like for making tires. Uh, if you look at Anthony C. Sutton's work, um, there's a lot of evidence that IG Farben and other companies uh, that were connected in with United States uh, companies and establishments such as Prescott Bush and his investments into the Nazi war effort and other uh, technological transfers that were going on. So our interest here and in the bio-psi war is obviously in biological weapons research, but there was also other things like synthetic oil 
uh, combinations and again like how to make tracks for tanks um, tech, different sorts of technologies that maybe aren't as like interesting but these facts are as we were discussing in one of the episodes previously these aren't just facts that I'm uh, you know me I'm obsessed about because I like to look and read about germs and I'm all weird no I mean this has been basically put on my plate as one of the most important types of research that I can do to try to understand what's going on in the modern day and it doesn't seem like something that's going to be going away in the next 10 years this is going to be a continuous thing so for me this is just as important as someone making like the loose change documentary for others and getting that out so that they can consume and pick up the information fast enough to at least try to understand and wrap their heads around what is going on in this world it's it's a insane time to be alive it's also very exciting and I'm also you know, quite enjoying life at the moment. I'm, I'm having a good time, you know, and I'm able to sit down and do these live streams and do the research. And I'm, I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. And I feel like not only fortunate to be able to do that, but I feel like it's a duty, a responsibility of people that are capable and able to be able to help others understand information from a different perspective, hopefully a more enlightened and researched and uh, well-rounded perspective and more, uh, healthy holistic worldview and philosophy coming behind it um and i really appreciated a lot of the things that jana uh jana spirianto said and if that's how you say your last name i apologize if i didn't say it right i think that's why you just put esp <laughs> maybe no but i um had been talking and mark passio and i were talking about how much value that we got out of the recent work you've been doing on uh, on the uh, it's like uh, the biological warfare, vaccinations, eugenics, epigenics, and things like that. Uh, that w that could be in the sh that is in the show notes of last week. We cut we outroed with uh, part nine of Jenna's uh, series, and just to get the name right, so I can read it into the record correctly here and show you where you can find that tyranny and eugenics through public health, bioterrorism, and vaccines, part nine. A very important piece, and uh, I like the way what I was getting at was I liked the way that Jana mixed in like uh, natural law philosophy and living under natural law and self ownership and you know who owns your body? Is it somebody else? Somebody else is making a claim over your body, able to put things in your body that you don't approve of? What What is that known as? That's known as slavery. You know, if your body is being claimed to be owned by somebody else, and we have to reclaim our sovereignty here on this planet in the here and now. And part of that is to be able to understand the information that you need to work through to be able to get there. So there could be solutions that come out of this kind of information that somebody's like, I wasn't aware that problem was going on. Now that we're aware that that problem's going on, all we need to do then is be able to make this device that would clean your blood of these viruses and purify. I mean, that's probably what the elite psychopaths are doing, right? They probably aren't all that worried about this, what I'm calling an intentional release of a bioweapon worldwide, because they've, again, like we're seeing here in, these, in this uh, research from the Nazis or from the American scientists or the Russian scientists or any of the scientists, it is... Well, if we don't do it, then they'll do it. So we've got to do it. Well, that's the same thing with this. Like, well, if we release this virus on the planet that's going to specifically target these specific races, how do we make sure that it doesn't cross over or doesn't make sure that it attacks our families or our... 
and they have ways to defend against it before they roll out the big plan. Let's just say that. And we'll cover more of that as the BioSci war goes on. And we'll get more in-depth on the research that needs to be done to try to see is what I just said even anywhere near true of what the kind of stuff that goes on, right? And uh, what will surprise you is that that is absolutely the case of, of what goes on with the elite you know, people is that they do have methods of healing themselves and technologies to be able to take care of their, their health. That the, It's like an Elysium type thing, like... Elysium that they had gotten to a point where the elite, you know, had built a ring around the outside of the planet, which was nice and clean and purified. And they had these technologies there that would heal them immediately. They just sit in the machine. But the people down on Earth were like controlled by robots and just, you know, beaten into submission and had to have all the forced injections and things and didn't have access to these super high advanced technologies um, that the more, you know, well-off people on this outer ring in Elysium had. Uh, so that's an interesting flick to go check out if you haven't seen that. But what we're going to do now in the bio -Sci war aerosol, aerosolized innovations is head into uh, somewhat of an intermission. Uh, we'll gauge where things are at after that. And then we're going to cover a few articles. But what we're going to go into for intermission is Dave Emery's uh, For the Record Number 686, Update on the National Cancer Institute's Viral Cancer Program, Biological Warfare and AIDS. And this is a 30-minute segment, and you can find that in the show notes on and on Dave Emery's site. And I hold no you know, reason not to you know, point to the other researchers that I find value in their work. And as far as the type of research that we're doing here, and, uh, you know, also with the like article that we brought up early in the series and we've talked about in Grand Theft World from Whitney Webb on uh, DARPA, bat editing genes and things like that. It's over here in the show notes. Uh, bats, gene editing and bioweapons, recent DARPA experiments raise concern amid coronavirus outbreak. If you only could read one article, I would suggest that. But then David Emery's work uh, on AIDS on biological warfare, on uh, uh, Nazis and genocide, and all the stuff that we were discussing there in, in uh, Annie Jacobson's book. This man has done a tremendous amount of work over the years. I have just ordered his archive and uh, plan to have it here soon. Hopefully, I saw that, it, it was, uh, that my donation was accepted. And this archive page of his here that I have in my show notes as one of the see also resources is, a, is an archive that you can see here that goes back, you know, 40 years of his research, but at least like 30 years of that documented here. You, you have 20 years just on this archive page, and I know he has works that go back further than that. And basically, I mean, just taking this information that we're trying to do in a video form here, but he goes into things that we're definitely pulling from in this show. And I, I pull from a lot of areas. I'm, I pull from many different sources and places where I can get the information, right? And I'm not coming at it like, I'm the expert, everybody listen to me. And I, I also would like to have more people come on the show to be able to like have a guest, you know, show their research and um, get different opinions than mine out or a different voice than mine on here. But the point is, it's not about me. It's not about Dave. It's not about, you know, Richard, or it's not about Mark 
or it's not about anybody that I necessarily bring up on the show. The information is what we're trying to get out. The tapestry, the long-term goal of what I want to do is to be able to do similar to what Dave has done there in that site, have a body of work over many years that I can look back on and be proud of that I was doing something to try to attempt to, you know, make, make more peace and prosperity and truth available in this world for other people, make a better environment for me and my family and the larger community. Beyond that, you know, there's fancy whatever the show, the music in the beginning, the title cards got letters that might try to grab your attention. This is all, you know, marketing techniques. And I suggest that you learn some sales, some real sales is actually helping people. And the best way to learn that process, in my opinion, would be through the University of Reason and the Autonomy course by Richard Grove, which you can also find down in the show notes. Your way into that would be the 19 skills document, which you can get and then uh, learn your way through the path to success. And again, we'll also have a little Easter egg about that here at the end of the episode. Uh, but for those watching now, you're about to get a real treat. This is Dave Emery for the record 686. He's going to be talking about um, a program. I'll just read the intro. Actually, I'll just let Dave do it here. So we're just going to skip to that. My little sound swoosher thing today is not working out. So when I swoosh, it's not doing the swoosh. I could fix that really quick. Uh, give me one sec. Uh, scratch that. I'm not going to try to fix it live. We'll just go right to Dave Emery. Thanks for your patience, and uh, we'll see you on the other side of this. about a 30-minute uh, intermission. Hello, my name is Dave Emery, and this is For the Record Program number 686, update on the National Cancer Institute's Viral Cancer Research Program and Biological Warfare. This program is being recorded on August 30th of the year 2009. Uh, this program is going to be a reading into the record of an article that came out many years ago, and it's also a subject that I covered many years ago, uh, and explicitly in the context of AFA program number 16, recorded in April of 1986. That was the first significant compilation of work that I've been doing for decades on AIDS as a man-made disease or a human-made disease. Uh, that is not a new concept to veteran listeners to this program. Uh, a lot of material has come out in the last several years that I think points irrevocably, points uh, inarguably toward that hypothesis and specifically indicates that uh, the research which was conducted in this country and in all probability in other countries was done on the foundation of work, research work that was done under the Third Reich. Veteran listeners to the program are no doubt aware of Project Paperclip, under which some of the top Nazi scientists were incorporated into the U.S. national security establishment at the end of World War II. Well, many of those top scientists, in addition to being brilliant scientists, were war criminals of the First Order. And it's worth noting that the Third Reich's Biological Warfare Research Program, as covered in a number of programs, including most recently for the record 606, was disguised as a cancer research program. Now, the focal point of this program, or the 
reason, the raison d'etre for this program is not only the fact that there is very firm evidence at this point that cancer can be used as a weapon of assassination, but more importantly, it is, was the National Cancer Institute's Viral Cancer Research Program, or Virus Cancer Program, that was the epicenter of AIDS research in the United States. And specifically, it was that program that, quote, discovered, unquote, the AIDS virus. The NCI's National Cancer Institute's Frederick Research Center basically was the old Fort Detrick, the Army's top biological warfare research center. It was ostensibly turned over to civilian control, but as we're going to see, ostensibly is the key word here. One of the key people involved with that was Dr. Robert Gallo, who was the quote, discoverer, unquote, note the quotes of the AIDS virus. And this program is intended to sort of flesh out and to provide detail for this line of research, which I've been engaging in for decades, and specifically for the record program 606 and the recently recorded for the record 682 are immediate antecedents to this, and both programs contain links to and, in many cases, long text excerpts of this particular article. This article can be found in the supplemental section, of uh, the for the record of of the spitfirelist.com website and in the descriptions for for the record 682 and more importantly 606 there are links to this article so without further ado here goes this article is called the cancer national cancer institute and fort dietrich link it was authored by richard hatch it was published by covert action information bulletin in their issue number 39 the winter of 1991 and 92 i have read a small amount of this into a supplement to afa program number 16 the article begins with a quote from colonel william d taggart former commander of the army's medical unit at fort dietrich he said Those who would increase the potency of biological weapons must search for improved methods of mass production of organisms, factors which will enhance the virulence, ways to prolong the storage life of living agents, ways to improve aerosol stability, and methods of producing variant organisms by recombination or by other means. And then Richard Hatch goes on to write, In 1969, President Richard Nixon ordered a halt to offensive biological warfare research and weapons stockpiling by the United States. The U.S. Army destroyed its toxins, viruses, and bacteria with heat and disinfectants by May of 1972. The disposal of the scientific personnel was not so simple. Some of these bio-warriors went to the CIA. Others quickly found new support from the National Cancer Institute, particularly in its Virus Cancer Program, or VCP. Parenthetically, it was this program and Fort Detrick renamed the Frederick Research Center that was the epicenter of AIDS research, and it is because of that that I am reading this article into the record and, again, uh, sort of shouting it from the rooftop, so to speak. Continuing, the National Cancer Institute funded and supervised some of the same scientists, universities, and contracting corporations, ostensibly for cancer research, which had conducted biological warfare research. Some of these medical research contracts ran simultaneously with the U.S. Biological Warfare Program. When the military work ended, the civilian programs continued to expand on the same critical areas outlined by Colonel Tigert, or Tigert, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, T-I-G-E-R-T-T. 
The NCI's viral cancer program, a highly politicized public relations effort, was launched in 1971 with great fanfare as part of Nixon's War on Cancer. The stated aim of the program was to organize experiments aimed at finding cancer-causing viruses. Apparently, this agenda was compatible with the incorporation into various units of the VCP of possibly dozens of former USBW researchers who continued to study topics with potential military application. Potential cancer-causing viruses were collected, grown in huge amounts, and distributed through the thousands of animals that were infected experimentally, and the aerosol distribution of carcinogenic viruses was also studied. Two former biological warfare facilities would play a large part in the viral cancer program. The U.S. Army's Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland, had been the, quote, parent research and pilot plant center for biological warfare, unquote. During the early 1960s, the CIA paid the facility $100,000 a year for biological warfare and chemical agents and their delivery systems. In Oakland, California, the Naval Biosciences Laboratory was involved in early experiments with the plague and collaborated in massive open-air tests of biological warfare simulants in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1950s. Former biological warfare specialists from both of these centers were deeply involved in all aspects of the viral cancer program. So again, note that in addition to Fort Detrick, also the Naval Biosciences Laboratory, right here in our backyard in Oakland, California, figure prominently in this concatenation, the viral cancer program of the National Cancer Institute. Note also that the CCR5 Delta 32 genetic variant, which provides purebred Northern Europeans, or quote, Aryans, unquote, with a hereditary immunity to HIV infection, was discovered because it also apparently provided immunity to uh, some of those same people from infection by bubonic plague. New thinking, by the way, on the Black Death of Europe, is that it was not actually bubonic plague, or what we call bubonic plague, but actually a viral hemorrhagic fever that uh, was introduced from Africa by some of the early trade and exploration that was taking place in that time, possibly by some of the Crusades as well. Now, what we're going to look at here, in addition to further developing the link between the National Cancer Institute's viral cancer program and biological warfare research, is the relationship between key universities, in this case the University of California, and those programs. Uh, Richard Hatch's next section here is called the University Military Complex, and it reads, reflecting a common pattern of cooperation, Much of the military-related research took place at institutions connected with or directly part of U.S. universities. The University of California is well known for its role in managing the two main U.S. nuclear weapons laboratories, the Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories. Less well known is the fact that UC Berkeley also helps manage the Naval Biosciences Laboratory, or NBL, earlier called the Naval Biological Laboratory. This connection became central to the VCP and continued after the ban on offensive biological warfare work. Well before President Nixon ordered the conversion of the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Center at Fort Detrick to civilian uses in 1971, this military facility was cooperating closely with the University of California. From 1953 to 1968, the University of California, while managing the Naval Biosciences Laboratory, now at the Naval Supply Center, also had biological warfare contracts with the United States Army. 
After U.S. treaty obligations would have prevented open research on mass production of dangerous viruses without a medical cover, the VCP provided an ideal excuse to study scale-up problems. One of the first new priorities at the Fort Detrick facility after the ban was, quote, the large-scale production of oncogenic or cancer-causing and suspected oncogenic viruses, unquote. Within a year, the NCI began mass production at within one 15-month period ending in June of 1977, the viral cancer program produced 60,000 liters of cancer-causing and immunosuppressive viruses. That, by the way, that's a, quite a figure, 60,000 liters. That is a lot of microorganisms, deadly microorganisms under the circumstances. Continuing, throughout the 1970s, U.S. defensive, unquote, biological warfare efforts were increasingly aimed at the research and development of viral disease agents. The seed stocks for this massive production of viruses came from the Cell Culture Laboratory, or CCL. The CCL was, quote, physically located at the Naval Biosciences Laboratory, or NBL, in Oakland, California. Because this laboratory was financed in part by the NCI and linked to UC, it would become a clearinghouse and central repository for vast quantities of potentially cancer-causing tissues and the tissues that might contain them. Thus, after the ban, the Naval Biosciences Lab at UC continued experimentation on biological agents, but under the guise of defensive, unquote, research. The viral cancer program contract ran concurrently with the Naval Biosciences Laboratory's work on bubonic plague, Rift Valley fever, and meningitis. The NBL did other research for Fort Detrick as well, before the 1972 ban on offensive work. The National Biosciences Laboratory also performed much of the original research into biological warfare done during World War II. At some, NBL work was, quote, listed only in Pentagon research bulletins, unquote. The Naval Biosciences Laboratory Cell Culture Laboratory project was supervised for the viral cancer program of the National Cancer Institute by doctors James Duff and Jack Gruber. Duff had been at Fort Detrick for 12 years, joining the NCI. His biography lists research into Clostridium botulinum toxins and 13 botulinum toxins known to cause botulism, uh, food poisoning, and they are among the most toxic substances known. It was during Duff's tenure at Fort Detrick that the U.S. Army stockpiled botulinum toxin weapons. There, too, the intensive study of psittacosis or parrot fever resulted in the accidental infection of at least 12 workers while Duff was working there. After serving for eight years at Fort Detrick, Gruber moved to the National Cancer Institute. His biography lists work on arthropod-borne viruses, unquote. The U.S. stockpiled biological warfare weapons based on one arthropod-borne virus and studied many others. He soon became chair of the Program Resources and Logistics Advisory Group of the Viral Cancer Program, where he helped coordinate projects involving production of viruses, provision of test animals, and the Biohazard Safety Program, unquote. In 1984, Gruber became head of the Cancer Etiology Division of the National Institutes of Health.
And in addition to the relationship here between biological warfare research veterans Dr. James Duff and Jack Gruber and the viral cancer research program of the National Cancer Institute's Cell Culture Laboratory, which was maintained at the Naval Biosciences Laboratory, there was also tremendous research into aerosol-borne viruses and other agents. The next section of Richard Hatch's article, It's in the Air. The field of aerobiology, or the transmission of disease organisms through the air, is essentially an outgrowth of biological warfare research. The military objective of exposing many people to a biological warfare agent and the ready susceptibility to infection by inhaling these agents make aerosol weapons the most practical form of transmission. The National Cancer Institute also studied aerosol transmission of viruses intensively. One such study... FS57, Aerosol Properties of Oncogenic Viruses, was funded at more than $100,000 a year. After the ban on offensive BW research, the NCI and the Office of Naval Research jointly sponsored NBL experiments on the, quote, aerosol properties of potentially oncogenic viruses. The National Cancer Institute justified its aerosol research because its scientists often handled suspect cancer viruses in a highly concentrated form. A lab accident could release a mist of virus. National Cancer Institute needed to understand and anticipate the danger. How the Navy justified its interest is unknown, but if a new cancer-causing biological warfare agent was discovered, it would likely be delivered as an aerosol. The line between aerosol and biological warfare research was often a fine one. The National Cancer Institute's project officer and former U.S. Air Force virologist Dr. Alfred Hellman worked with Mark Chatigny, a research engineer at Naval Biosciences Laboratory and also a member of the National Cancer Institute's Biohazards Work Group from the NBL. Biological warfare research veteran Dr. Hellman also oversaw the 1971 $100,000 Naval Biosciences Laboratory study on the, quote, physical and biological characteristics of viral aerosols, unquote. In 1961, the Naval Biosciences Laboratory had done similar research for Fort Detrick on the, quote, stability and virulence of biological warfare aerosols, unquote. Dr. Chatigny's Naval Biosciences Lab research into aerosol distribution of viruses would continue well into the 1980s. Such overlapping of purposes raises serious questions about the wisdom of placing control of viral cancer program viruses under the NBL. More about aerosol studies here. And uh, Richard Hatch's sad next section is called, appropriately, More Aerosol Studies. While UC Berkeley appears to have been at the heart of aerosol BW research, it was by no means alone. Other universities collaborated with the BW effort while working on the VCP in parallel. From 1955 to 1965, the Ohio State University College of Medicine conducted research for Fort Detrick into the aerosol transmission of BW agents, including tularemia and Q fever. In some of these studies, prisoners from the Ohio State Penitentiary were used as guinea pigs. Between 1952 and 1969, the affiliated Ohio State University Research Foundation had eight contracts with the U.S. Army for biological warfare research. Tularemia, rabbit fever, and Q fever were ultimately stockpiled by the U.S. Army. 
Before he worked with University of California, Dr. Hellman supervised an NCI contract for Ohio State University. Designed to study the aerosol transmission of cancer-causing viruses, this research started in 1965 and continued at least until 1972. The principal investigator for this work, Dr. Richard Greismer, would eventually succeed in giving tumors to mice and monkeys. Greismer then went to work briefly at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, part of the U.S. Department of Energy nuclear research system. After his stint at Oak Ridge, Greismer returned to NCI, where he headed the NCI bioassay program, which tested chemicals suspected of causing cancer. This multi-million dollar program was so badly managed that epidemics forced the killing of nearly 90,000 test animals and testing of suspected carcinogenic chemicals fell far behind schedule. Many other universities prominent in the USBW program, such as Johns Hopkins, University of Maryland, and the University of Minnesota, were also heavily involved in the VCP. Since the BW work performed by these universities remains classified, the exact relationship between VCP and biological warfare research remains a murky one. The pattern of overlapping military BW and NCI work was paralleled by the relationship between industrial contractors and the viral cancer program of the NCI. Charles Pfizer and Company, Incorporated, a pharmaceutical firm, had a contract with the NCI which included production of, quote, a large quantity of a variety of viruses for the VCP. The immunosuppressive Mason Pfizer monkey virus was grown in large quantity, and other animal cancer viruses were adapted to grow in human cell lines. During the same time period, 1961 to 1971, the NCI contractor, Pfizer, conducted a secret study for the U.S. Army, quote, into the growth and culture media for unspecified biological agents, unquote. In addition, from 1968 to 1970, Pfizer had a contract for scale production and evaluation of staphylococcal enterotoxoid B, unquote, for the U.S. Army BW program. Staphylococcal enterotoxoid is a protective vaccine against a bacterial toxin which was part of the U.S. arsenal. The production of vaccine against a stockpile BW weapon must be considered an offensive BW project. According to MIT scientists Harley Strauss and Jonathan King, quote, these steps, the generation of a potential BW agent, development of a vaccine against it, testing of the efficacy of the vaccine, are all components that would be associated with an offensive BW program. Clearly, without an antidote or vaccine to protect attacking troops, the utility of a stockpiled BW agent would be seriously limited. Next comes a really important section of the article. President Nixon's 1971 announcement that Fort Detrick would be converted to a center for cancer research could not be immediately implemented. First, biological warfare agents stored there, such as the anti-crop agent Rice Blast, had to be destroyed. The buildings were then decontaminated, and the facilities were turned over to the National Cancer Institute, which renamed the facility Frederick Cancer Research Center. Lytton Bionetics was named as the prime contractor. A major player in the military-industrial complex, Lytton Bionetics Corporation worked extensively on the dispersion of biological warfare agents from planes and included U.S. Air Force contracts for the, quote, supersonic delivery of dry biological agents, unquote. 
From 1966 to 1968, Bionetics Research Laboratories, which became Lytton Bionetics in 1973, held two contracts with the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Program. At the same time, it held major contracts with the National Cancer Institute. One of Bionetics Research Laboratory's most important NCI contracts was a massive virus inoculation program that began in 1962 and ran until at least 1976 and used more than 2,000 monkeys. Dr. Robert Gallo, the controversial head of the current U.S. AIDS Research Program at National Cancer Institute and, its, and the chief of its tumor cell biology laboratory, and the aforementioned Dr. Jack Gruber, formerly of VCP and then NIH, were project officers for the inoculation program. The monkeys were injected with everything from human cancer tissues to rare viruses and even sheep's blood in an effort to find a transmissible cancer. Many of these monkeys succumbed to immunosuppression after infection with the Mason-Pfizer monkey virus, the first known immunosuppressive retrovirus, a class of viruses that includes the HIV or human immunodeficiency virus. In 1976, Dr. Seymour Coulter, a prominent NCI scientist and former military medicine expert, reported on experiments so dangerous that other scientists publicly asked for an end to such work. By blending the genetic material of viruses causing cancers in mice and baboons, he created a new virus which could cause cancer in dogs, monkeys, and even chimpanzees. Because it could attack chimpanzees, other scientists feared it could spread to genetically similar human beings. The new virus was a product of some of the first crude genetic recombination experiments. Lawrence Loeb and Kenneth Tartoff of the Institute for Cancer Research in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, went even further in calling for change and calling for a ban on such potentially dangerous experimentation. The production of malignant tumors in a variety of primate species suggests the possibility of creating viruses that are oncogenic for humans. Therefore, we urge that all experiments involving co-cultivation of known oncogenic viruses with primate viruses be immediately halted until the safety of such experiments are extensively evaluated." Unquote. Experiments performed under NCI contract included many dangerous viral inoculation programs like the primate inoculation program run by Gallo and Gruber. So-called species barriers were routinely breached in efforts to find or create infectious cancer viruses. Viruses native to one species were injected into animals from another species in hope of triggering cancers. Often, the recipient animal would be immunosuppressed by radiation, drugs, or other treatment. NIH primate researchers were well aware that, quote, the ecological niches of man and animal cross with increasing frequency, and this undoubtedly will create or uncover new problems, unquote. At a 1975 NCI symposium, a participant, Dr. J. Moore Janowski, admitted that, quote, environmental motivated, we motivated, environmental motivated, we motivated groups begin to consider primate laboratories as being a source of danger, unquote. He continued to comment that, quote, a European primate center was not able to begin operations as a result of adverse publicity they obtained because of the Marburg disease outbreak. The speaker was referring to a 1967 outbreak in Yugoslavia and West Germany of this viral disease, which killed several people. Tissues obtained from the African green monkeys used in biomedical work were the source of the mini-epidemic. Dr. Morjanowski suggested that researchers should fight against tighter restrictions on primate experiments. 
Upon the National Cancer Institute Aegis, VCP provided many opportunities for contact between former BW specialists and others in the scientific community. Former BW specialist Dr. Peter Garone and Arnold Weedham were prominent members of the biohazard control and containment segment of the VCP. Their positions allowed them frequent contact with laboratories handling hazardous viruses. Garone and Weedham both worked for many years at Fort Detrick. They were both specialists in the airborne transmission of diseases. In the 1950s, Weedham was in charge of U.S. Army tests of tularemia or rabbit fever on human volunteers. In Jerome's BW research, he used prisoners from the federal prison camp at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. This group of human guinea pigs was more fortunate than Dr. Weedham's. They were exposed only to cold viruses. Garone was awarded the Army's Meritorious Civilian Service Award for his efforts at Fort Detrick. The 1975 NCI-sponsored symposium on biohazards and zoonotic problems of primate procurement, quarantine, and research illustrates another aspect of NCI military cooperation. Zoonoses, diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans, make up the majority of biological warfare agents. The meeting brought together NCI researchers, non-military officers from major to colonel, and a civilian from the Edgewood Arsenal, a U.S. chemical warfare facility also in Maryland. The officers were from the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, the Defense Nuclear Agency, and the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. In addition, Doctors Weedham, Duff, Gruber, and Jerome were all in attendance, and by the way, all biological warfare research veterans. Jerome presented a paper on the biohazards of experimentally infected primates. He now headed Tulane University's Delta Regional Primate Research Center. In passing, he mentioned aerosol hazards and recommended, quote, exposing animals so that only the head is in contact with the aerosol rather than whole body exposure, unquote. Weedham had previously briefed him on BW tests involving just such exposure of monkeys to aerosolized staphylococcal enterotoxin. In these tests, four Fort Detrick workers still became ill through exposure to the animals. Presumably, Garone was also aware of a 1964 accident when 15 Fort Detrick workers inhaled aerosol staphylococcal enterotoxin B, milligram for milligram, one of the most deadly agents ever studied. Unquote. Skipping down. Research into viruses during the war on cancer provided an ideal cover for continuing biological warfare research. As Colonel Tigard advised, the NCI project allowed the mass production of viruses, the development of means to enhance virulence, exploration of aerosol transmission, and the production of new recombinant disease agents. These civilian projects ran concurrently with military projects in many cases, when political expediency dictated an end to overt U.S. biological warfare research, the viral cancer program provided a means to continue experiments that would otherwise be difficult to justify. And again, AIDS figures prominently in this concatenation. This article uh, is present in its entirety in the supplemental section to SpitfireList.com. It will also be presented in its entirety in the description for For the Record Program 686. This concludes For the Record 686. This program is being recorded on April 30th of two, eight, on August 30th of 2001. My name is Dave Emery. Thanks for listening.
All right, so there you have it. Uh, excellent uh, article read there by Dave Emery on epico episode 686 of For the Record. Now, again, that article, or I don't know if I had mentioned this before, but I've been on the hunt uh, for that particular article. Dave did pa paste it here in his site and in the entirety of it, but the link you click doesn't work to that. And I've looked in archive at this site, at this link. I've looked... Oh, I've looked around a little bit. I haven't done like a massive amount of hunting. I've searched around. I can't seem to find the specific article. Now, there could be a good reason for that. But it is, you know, on Dave's site, and we uh, can follow up on that in the future. That could also be a challenge for somebody that wants to email me that link at tyler at tylerbloyer.com or go on the Discord server under the bio war section. So that's something else to bring up. But if you want to contribute to this research, um, the way into this right now, and then we'll continue on with the episode, is to go to tylerblair.com, right? I'll just kind of lead you through the, the breadcrumb trail. And you want to get to the Discord server. That's currently a live show. And then click uh, here to call into the Discord server. That will open up the link to hop in. You go through that, and you'll end up in this room. And I don't have any tags or anything. You can see I'm in here live streaming. I have this. You can actually jump in this room and I could take a, a question from you on the show. That's a thing that I have set up here uh, with the way that I've routed the audio. But then you can also jump down into the bio sci war room and uh, within the Stones Media Network is that's the kind of the name that I've given my media production company. As you can see in the intro, it comes up media within the Stones Media Network. And within that network, I support other people and I have clients and everything, but we also do our own work that we produce and we have a course and we do uh, other things like that and train people and have a team. And I have this section here, BioSciWar. So if you want to come and contribute to the BioSciWar or add things that I might want to see to read into the show or something, you could just paste that link there and I will see it and be able to pick that up. I paste stuff that I'm coming across, stuff that might even be coming up this week in the show and uh, put it there. So anyway, moving on, I wanted to read into this. Now, I did get another book this week, uh, The Plague of Corruption by uh, Dr. Judy Mikovich and Kent Heckenlively. And uh, this author, or really a bi virologist, or biologist, virologist, Judy Mikovich, um, she's in the book, The Pandemic and Pan Plandemic 1 and Plandemic 2. And uh, there's stuff in here that we definitely want to cover and bring into the show, but I'm not quite there yet. But there's a foreword in here by uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And uh, yeah, she talks in here about the SV40. Um, in 1961, Eddie discovered that the cancer-causing monkey virus SV40 had contaminated 98 million Salk polio vaccines. We talked about Jonas Salk uh, last week in the Grand Theft World and his book Survival of the Wisest. Uh, when she injected the SV40 virus into the newborn hamsters, the rodents sprouted tumors. Eddie discovered, discovery proved an embarrassment to many scientists working on the vaccines. Instead of rewarding her for her visionary work, the NIH officials banned her from the polio research and assigned her to other duties. The NIH buried the alarming information and continued using the vaccines. In the autumn of 1960, the New York Cancer Society invited Eddie to address 
an annual conference. Eddie chose the subject of the tumors uh, induced by the polio virus. However, she also described rumors, uh, tumors induced by the SV40 viral agent in monkey kidney cells. Her NIH supervisor angrily reprimanded Eddie for mentioning the discovery publicly and banned her from public health crisis statements. Eddie argued for publications of her work on the virus, casting the contaminated vaccine supply on an urgent public health crisis. Agency bigwig stonewalled publications allowing Merck and Parkett Davis to contaminate marketing or to continue marketing the uh, oncogenic vaccine to millions of American adults and children. On July 26 of 1961, the New York Times reported that Merck and Park Davis were withdrawing their Salk vaccines. The article said nothing about cancer. The Times ran the story. I don't I just kind of like did this live, guys. I just decided to dive into this. I, I had it sitting here. And we were reading about Merck earlier and the polio vaccine. And uh, we've talked about, and Emery mentioned the SV40 virus there. And so even though Merck and Parker Davis recalled their polio vaccines in 1961, the NIH officials refused to pursue a total recall of the rest of the supply, fearing reputational injury to the vaccine program. If Americans learned that the PHS had infected them with the cancer-producing virus, as a result, millions of unsuspecting Americans received carcinogenic vaccines between 1961 and 1963. The Public Health Service then concealed that, quote, secret, unquote, for 40 years. The total 98 million Americans received the shot potentially containing the cancer-producing virus, which is now part of the human genome. In 1996, governmental researchers identified SV40 in 23% of the blood spe specimens and 45% of the sperm specimens collected from healthy adults. 6% of the children born between 1980 and 1995 are infected. Public health officials gave millions of people the vaccine for years, and they knew it was infected. They contaminated humanity with a monkey virus and refused to admit what they had done. Today, SV40 is used in research laboratories throughout the world because of its so reliable uh, carcin... It, its uh, variety... Oh, sorry. I got confused there. Today, SV40 is used in research laboratories throughout the world because it is so reliable, reliably carcinogenic. Researchers use it to produce a wide variety of bone and soft tissue cancers, including mesothelioma and brain tumors in animals. These cancers have exploded in baby boom generation, which receive the Salk and Sabin polio vaccines between 1955 and 1963. Skin cancers are up to 70%, lymphoma and prostate by 66%, and brain cancer by 34%. The prior to 1950, Mesothemioma was rare in humans. Today, doctors diagnose nearly 3,000 Americans with mesothelioma every year. 60% of the tumors that were tested uh, contained SV40. Today, scientists find SV40 in a wide range of deadly tumors, including between 33% and 90% of brain tumors. Eight of eight uh, appendymosis and nearly half of the bone tumors tested. Uh, in successive measures, the NIH forbade Bernice, Eddie, and from public speaking 
and attending scholarly conferences. Held up by her papers, removed from her, or sorry, held up her papers, removed her vaccine research altogether, and eventually destroyed her animal work, or sorry, her animals, and took away her access to the labs. Her treatment continued to mark an enduring scandal with the scientific community. Yet NIH, NIH's Bernice Eddy's playbook has become standardized template for the federal vaccine regulations in their treatment of disorders vaccine scientists who seek to tell the truth about vaccines. So as you can see, this book is uh, aptly titled The Plague of Corruption and talking right in there to the heavy stuff of the polio vaccine containing the SV40 monkey virus. How did it get there? Dave Emery was just talking about how the Nazi scientists um, in America were importing monkeys from Africa to study their monkey viruses. Uh, there's a lot of research and paper trail uh, regarding that research on um, monkey viruses like SV40. So this we need to go a lot more into. There's also another picture in here of the eight ball at Fort Detrick that we've we've been talking about it so much now that here's another here's another picture of it Ch check it out ladies and gentlemen the picture <laughs> no lots of good uh there's Judy and uh, Judy's a warrior Judy is someone who might not see the full picture she didn't uh I don't know how well she ties it into the eugenics or the Nazi Third Reich and Operation Paperclip in here I'll need to read through the book, and we'll definitely probably be highlighting more of that book. But I found Judy Mikovic on Mikovic Mikovic on Ernest Hancock's show, uh, "Declare Your Independence," and he's ha had her on there for years. Um, at first, I couldn't even keep up with what she was talking about, and now it's more relevant and more pertinent than ever what Judy talks about. And this book is a. Uh, the foreword was by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and that's the whole reason I got into that, because part of the foreword was really good. But here on February 19th, he said, Georgia plus Tennessee are first states to gain approval to diffuse chemical known, known, chemicals known to trigger asthma and other serious respiratory illnesses in schools, health care, food processing facilities, plus in, interstate transport. And uh, so EPA approves chemical air treatment against COVID-19 despite known risks, uh, despite known health hazards. And this is on the Defender, the Children's Health Defense. I believe this is uh, his website, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it says here, EPA approves chemical, quote, air treatment, unquote, for COVID-19, for COVID, despite known health hazards. Georgia and Tennessee are first states to gain approval to diffuse a, chemically known, a chemical known to trigger asthma and other serious respiratory illnesses throughout government buildings, healthcare and food processing facilities, and interstate transportation. In mid-January, the U.S. Environmental Protections Agency, or EPA, approved requests from two southern states, Georgia and Tennessee, asking for an emergency exemption that would allow them to aerosolize select indoor spaces with antiviral, quote, air treatment, called Grignard Pure. Grignard Pure is a Nazi-sounding name. <laughs> Just sorry. I'm sorry, but like it, like what the fuck is that, dude? Grignard Pure is a nanoparticle 
based product is an active ingredient in substances called trilithine glycol or TEG or you could say TAG. The EPA's approval slid under the section 18 of the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, FIFRA, which allows the agency to greenlight pesticides for unregistered uses. It is defined geographic areas for up to a year during public health emergencies deemed urgent and non-routine. Greengard Pure contains TEG as a standalone chemical compound, but TEG is also a component of some polylithene glycol or PEG compounds, those of low molecular weight. Now, these links are here. You can click and learn, like, what is trilithylene glycol and what is a polylithene glycol, and that actually links back to this site, but, um, you know, you could go just Google what is PEG and, uh, you know, figure out more about what they plan to put in these aerosols. So this, this one actually has a Wikipedia. Pylithylene glycol compound derived from petroleum with many applications from industrial manufacturing to medicine. Okay, you know, whatever. Doesn't sound all that harmful. Uh, and then TAG is here. I had it up here somewhere. Uh, there's uh, some more information about that here, and I will not claim to know like more about these chemicals than is what's listed right in front of me on these websites, so you can go read more about those. Um, since last summer, the Children's Health, Health Defense has raised urgent questions, uh, urgent questions about the presence of PEG in the nanoparticles-based mRNA vaccines developed by Pfizer and Moderna. Authorities by the U.S., uh, authorized by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, for emergency use against COVID. Okay, so they're they're releasing these uh, drugs and putting PEG and TAG inside of them. And uh, it's, it's an emergency, so we've got to warp speed ahead, folks. In the December 14th press release and in letters to leaders at the Department of Health and Human Services, the FDA and the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, the NIAID, CHD warned about PEG's known assertions with adverse immune responses, including life-threatening anaphylaxis. And I highlighted that so you can go and see. There's, there's hyperlinks in there, too. An estimated 72% of the general population has anti-PEG antibodies, including elevated levels in 8% of Americans that can set those individuals up for adverse reactions when later exposed to PEG-containing substances. Pharmaceutical and biotech companies acutely aware of the correlation between anti-drug antibodies and increased adverse effects acknowledge that the phenomenon exposes a vexing and serious clinical problem that has come into sharp relief as yeah, I'm not sure why I had a problem with the site. Let me go back. <laughs> that uh, Let me start over. Pharmaceutical and biotech companies acutely aware of the correlation between anti-drug antibodies and increased adverse effects acknowledge that the phenomenon poses a vexing and serious clinical problem, one that has come into sharp relief as a recipient of COVID 
mRNA injections experience severe allergic reactions. In light of the interrelationship between PEG and TEG, the planned diffusion of nanoparticles-based TEG in the public spaces, including throughout buildings, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, introduces important new questions. <coughs> Could individuals already sensitized to PEG go into anaphylaxis when they inhale TEG? Or conversely, might people who are exposed to aerosolized TEG become sensitized to PEG? and run a risk of adverse reaction when they subsequently encounter a PEG containing mRNA injection or another, quote, pegulated drug, unquote. The newest kid on the block, atmospheric varicides. The Gringard company describes itself as, quote, an innovative leader in specialty chemical solutions for every industry, every industry need, unquote ranging from precision cleaners and wastewater treatments to atmospheric effects for the entertainment industry. In fact, the company's Gringard FX branch is North America's, quote, largest producer of theatrical fog and haze fluids, unquote, for movies, stadium concerts, and theaters, as well as being the manufacturers of stage blood promoted as, quote, so realistic they will freak out, unquote. The company now intends to parlay its extensive theatrical experience into the realm of atmospheric varicides, promising, quote, a light atmospheric haze throughout an indoor space that in inactivates enveloped viruses such as the novel coronavirus on non-porous hard surfaces and in the air, unquote. According to the EPA, Gringard Pure Products has the ability to, quote, permeate and kill over 98% of COVID-19 virus particles, unquote. Dispersal of Gringard Pure is the proposed, quote, via a building's HVAC system or using conventional ha haze or fog machines typically deployed in entertainment venues and in fire training, unquote. In an example of the revolving regulator industry door, a four-decade veteran of the EPA pesticide regulators regulation is now leading the consultant for Gringard, helping the company market the anti-COVID fluid as the solution to a, quote, critical challenge, unquote. Meanwhile, outgoing EPA administrator Andrew Wheeler touted Gringard Pure as a, quote, first of its kind, unquote, tool to, quote, help fight the spread of the novel coronavirus, unquote, vowing in the agency's press release that, quote, there is no higher priority for the EPA protecting the health and safety of Americans, unquote. And this is a section now reading again from the Defender Children's Health Defense, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s blog uh, from 218 of 2021 in the section Respiratory Irritant. Let's see if I can get some of this stuff out of the way. Okay. EPA's emergency go-ahead permits Georgia and Tennessee to diffuse Green Guards Pure continuously in, quote, break rooms, locker rooms, bathrooms, lobbies, elevators, eating areas, and food preparation areas. Remind me to stay out of those states, Georgia and Tennessee, for now. <laughs> in government, health care, and food processing facilities, as well as interstate transportation, anywhere where people are conducting actively deemed activity deemed essential by the state, unquote. The EPA endorsed the products 
emergency use in food preparation and eating areas despite warnings in the triglycerine glycol safety data sheet not to store TEG near food, foodstuffs, or portable water supplies, unquote. Did the EPA conduct an objective assessment of benefit versus risk? The agency's press release doesn't say, nor does it include any warning other than a one-sentence statement that, quote, tag may be an irritant for sensitive populations, unquote. Canadian fog and smoke safety guidelines for the live performance industry, on the other hand, specify that the high-risk individuals such as children, pregnant women, and people with asthma or serious illness should avoid exposure. But if the EPA uh, is unconcerned about the known short-term effects of exposure to glycol-containing fluids, including symptoms that sound a lot like COVID, or the potential for long-term harm, the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, ACAAI, is much more up to front about the risks addressing glycol-related fog machines, the ACAAI states. In people with asthma and airway, it says, quote here, in people with asthma and airway hyperactivity, reactivity, and irritant effect of short-term exposure to water-based fog machines, particularly when the chemical glycol is used, could trigger acute asthma symptoms including coughing, wheezing, chest tightness, and shortness of breath. Even in a person without asthma, short-term exposure to glycol-containing fog machines can be associated with headache, dizziness, so that goes on about the problems. And uh, the now let's skip down to the section on what about the nanoparticles. In September 2020, Brazilian researchers published an extensive discussion of nanotechnology, quote, for the COVID-19 virus management, unquote. Although eager to play up nanotechnology's current and potential anti-COVID applications, including the disinfectants, personal protective equipment, nano-based sensors, and, quote, enhanced activity, unquote, drugs, and nano-based vaccines, the authors also acknowledged some, quote, bottlenecks, one of the major ones being to ensure nanomaterials for safe use. A key observation by the Brazilian authors is that most studies only evaluate nanoparticle biocompatibility in vitro, that is, in a petri dish, rather than in vivo, in actual animals or humans. They state that without high-quality in vivo studies, it is impossible to fully understand, quote, the toxogenetic behavior of nanoparticles in the body, especially for long-term exposure, unquote. Elaborating, the Brazilian researcher said, quote, due to the multifaceted interactions between nanomaterials and biological systems in vivo, it is very challenging to foresee the behavior of these materials and under psychological conditions, unquote, particularly given that, quote, the fate and behavior of nanomaterials in the body can change when they reach blood circulation, unquote. Uh, that article goes on, and uh, we'll just read the conclusion here at the end. Reporting on one study's disappointing result, which deemed TAG ineffective in preventing airborne transmission, the clinicians concluded that glycol vaporization in public buildings was, quote, not yet ready for general use, unquote. Thanks to 21st century developments in polymer chemistry and nanotechnology, TEG has now circled back around the form of Green Guard Pure, although 
the later likely bears scant resemblance to the teg vapors used in the 1950s. Unfortunately for Georgia and Tennessee, residents who are about to be continuously exposed to Green Guard Pure, with Nevada possibly being the next due to the heavy lobbying by the Las Vegas entrepreneurs, neither Green Guard nor the EPA are addressing the thorny safety issues of the potentially teg-peg cross-reactivity re toxic buildup of nanoparticles in the body or synergistic toxicity from tag nanoparticle interactions. It is unclear whether the EPA provided an opportunity for public comment before rushing to approved Green Guard Pure. Regardless, concerned citizens may wish to ask the agency some pointed questions about which safety data did or did not factor into the decisions and how plans to protect the health and safety of Americans. Update. This piece was updated to reflect the Green Guard Pure has been approved for U.S. government buildings. The article previously said the product was approved for use in schools. Okay, so that's interesting, and uh, that's uh, something that ties into the aerosolized innovations and these vaccine research is being done, right, to uh, provide safety and effectiveness in the public spaces so that people can be safe with these aerosolized uh, uh, experiments that are going on right now. Uh, and, and here we have another article from August 11th in 2020, and it says, Aeronabs promise powerful inhalable protection against COVID-19. As the world awaits, and this is from the ucsf.edu um, website, the University of California, San Francisco. And it's talking about these little Aeronab uh, nanotechnologies. As the world awaits vaccines to bring COVID-19 pandemic under control, US, UC San Francisco scientists have devised a novel approach to halting the spread of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease. Led by UCSF graduate student Michael Schuf, a team of researchers engineered a completely synthetic production-ready molecule that straightjackets the crucial SARS-CoV-2 machinery and allows the virus to infect our cells. As reported by the new paper now available for reprint uh, server BioRxiv, experiments using live virus shown the molecules is among the most potent SARS-CoV-2 antiviral yet discovered. An aerosol formulated by tested, dubbed aeronabs by the researcher, these molecules could be self-administered with nasal spray or inhaler. Used once a day, aeronabs could provide powerful, reliable protection against SARS-CoV-2 until a vaccine becomes available. The research team is in active is in active discussions with the commercial partners to ramp up manufacturing and clinical testing of aeronabs. If these tests are successful, the scientists aim to make aeronabs widely available in inexpensive medications to prevent and treat COVID-19. Quote, far more effective than wearable forms of personal protective equipment, we think of aeronabs as a molecular form of PPE that could serve as an important stopgap until the vaccines provide a more permanent solution to COVID-19, unquote, said Aeronab's co-inventor Peter Walter, Ph.D. professor of biochemistry and biophysics at UCSF and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. For those who cannot access... Okay, whatever. Let's watch this video here. We have a clip. Scientists at UCSF have engineered a molecule to act as a new kind of personal protection that prevents COVID-19 by neutralizing coronavirus in the body. 
SARS-CoV-2, the virus so that causes cool. COVID-19, is a coronavirus named for the spike proteins that cover its surface. Once inside the airway, the spike protein opens like a flower and fits perfectly into the ACE2 receptor of a lung cell. Wow. This allows the virus to enter the cell and release its RNA, forcing the cell to create more coronaviruses that can spread to neighboring cells and infect other people. COVID-19 infection is only possible if the spike protein is able to interact with ACE2. Peter Walter and Ashish Manglik of UCSF set out to prevent this interaction by using nanobodies, tiny antibodies originally found in camels and llamas. They tested 2 billion different synthetic nanobodies against SARS-CoV-2. They found one that binds exceptionally well to the spike protein, Coming then they engineered it to make you. it even more potent. What they came up with is called Aeronav. When aeronabs bind to the spike protein, the virus can't attach to ACE2 but and it loses its ability air to is, infect is a cells. Conspiracy theory, though. So the aeronabs stay on the spike protein for an enormously long time. So after a week of uh, uh, measuring the affinity, we still haven't seen it uh, come off the spike protein. What did he say? You can make it for very, very cheap using either bacteria or yeast, making it essentially industrial quantities. It's so robust that we can dry it down into a powder that enables us to ship it across it. the world. Because it's so stable, we can put it in one of these. It's, this is a little nebulizer All right. that would allow us to aerosolize the molecule. Vaccines typically require years of research and production. Aeronabs could be available much faster. Plus, aeronabs would be inexpensive, perhaps even available over the counter, and could be self-administered using an inhaler or nasal spray. All right, this is great. Now, now that could be, like maybe that is going to be what the future is. Like you get up, you download the latest antiviral con concoction that day, it mixes the thing up, you, you spray it or, you know, your car or whatever, like your phone just like mists it on you. <laughs> and maybe that's how we're defending against the latest. And that's what, you know, this is not so much just like they're doing this. It's It's more or less like, this is in your face now to all those people who were like, they wouldn't spray things and they're not spraying. There's no such thing as chemical spraying in the air. They're not aerosolizing. Like, come on now. This is like mainstream news. This is stuff that's going on right now, um, but has been going on for some time. Now, there's another, this is that Green Guard Pure here that I've got another video. I don't know if we want to watch like the whole thing. It's probably pretty similar to that one. We're social individuals. We want to be together and we want to reduce this gap between us and be able to socialize. Oh, yeah. This is where they show, like, where you walk into the room and uh, it'll just detect, like, yo, you have a fever or something. Like, we better spray you with some shit. Well, let's put a little mist of hand sanitizer on you. Just a little poof. Just a little. Oh, you're sitting in the dental chair? Let's spray you with some chemicals. In the bus, spray you with some chemicals. Oh, better execute that person. <laughs> oh my god. And now with Grignard Pure in the air, it's really the final piece. No, it, I mean, it's not as nefarious as I'm making out, folks, right? Like, it, none of it ties into any of the aerosol, aerosol studies from the eight ball or, like we were saying, this uh, biological weapons research. None of it, 
none of it ties into any of that stuff. We're just going over some of the latest gadgets and technology uh, here on the show. Let's see, what does CNN got here for us? Is this video going to play? Might have to take, yeah. Let's see what we got here. When we think of robots, we think of factory floors and science fiction movies. Or as we've shown you on past episodes of Make, Create, Innovate, the Roomba vacuum cleaner or Bob the security guard. In these underground research labs in Zurich and Switzerland, the approach has been radically different. Robots so small, so miniature, they're barely visible to the eye and able to go places almost beyond our imagination. We're making micro and nano robots that are guided by externally generated magnetic fields for use in the human body. Brad Nelson is a mechanical engineer that likes to think small, very small. He's a pioneer in a field that's only existed for the last decade or so, nanorobotics. Give you an idea how small these are, if I had a teaspoon, I could fit about three billion of them in a teaspoon. So. Three billion? It's kind of unimaginable. It is kind of unimaginable, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the first challenge is how to make these things move. All right, well, I don't want to get the hit inspiration by the comes YouTube from nature, the copywriting e people, or, co yeah, not, not the copywriters. <laughs> uh, yeah, that looks like it some, might be something they would ding me for. And I was just thinking about how I really don't want to have this stream pulled down uh, off of that particular channel. But anyway, not for, like, I'm not covering the information purposes, but rather that the music... Well, on those, that's like a stupid reason to get uh, pulled off of a stream. So anyway, let's let's move on. Uh, so that's some stuff coming down that you can see that the technology that's kind of been brought up to the 21st century speed. And now with COVID, you know, there's no problem with aerosolizing vaccines in public places. And nobody has to know about any of the research that we've been doing on on how cancer research is kind of a cover for vaccine vaccine research being a cover for biological weapons research for cancer research for offensive war research and you know none of the companies behind any of this technology would ever nefariously use any of this to potentially carry out a eugenics operation or anything like that there's that would never occur. That's only in the past and in the 50s and 60s. And then since then, you know, they routed out all the Nazis got out of the biological weapons research programs. There's not no affiliation to a belief system about eugenics or anything like that going on. Just wanted to, you know, clear that up that that's where we're at. Now, uh, let's we I do need to kind of get moving today. There's a few more things that I wanted to cover. But what we'll do is just go into uh, a little bit of this documentary. This is uh, two, from 2014. Breaking news. Officials confirm the second USA case of the Middle East MERS. Um, and then really quick, uh, let's just go to a clip, though, before we jump to that, of Steve Brennan and what he has to say about SAI. And this was back in like 2018 or 2019. I'd have to confirm. But this was, if you recall, back when you know, there was no such thing as uh, spraying from airplanes into the sh uh, atmosphere. They wouldn't tie that in with an agenda to try to stop global warming or anything like that. Um, and having to do somehow with uh, terrorism. And let's just see what Steve Brennan has to say here, speaking 
at the Royal Institute of International, I mean the, uh, sorry, it's the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, the director, uh, director of the CIA, Steve Brennan. I presume a few of you have questions about terrorism and the so-called Islamic State of Iraq and Levant. I look forward to addressing them in the question and answer session. I know that our collective hearts, though, go out to the families of the latest victims of the horrific terrorist attacks perpetrated as well as incited by ISIL, the despicable attack at Istanbul's international airport yesterday that killed dozens and injured many more certainly bears the hallmarks of ISIL's depravity. And let me take a few moments to say a few words about some less discussed but still some very important issues that we at CIA and our colleagues throughout the intelligence community are watching closely. I'll start with the overarching challenge of instability which continues to grip large sections of the globe. Global instability is one of the defining issues of our time, and its implications are hard to overstate. As instability spreads, extremists and terrorists are finding sanctuary in ungoverned spaces. Energy supplies are being disrupted. Political reform is suffering, as too many governments opt for authoritarian measures at the expense of democratic principles and respect for human rights. Most devastating of all, though, is the human toll attendant to instability. Last week, the United Nations reported that the number of people displaced by global instability and conflict had reached 65 million, the highest figure ever recorded. In a host of countries, from East Asia to the Middle East to West Africa, governments are under stress and civic institutions are struggling to provide basic services and to maintain law and order. As governments in these regions recede from the center of national life, more people are shifting their allegiances away from the nation state and towards subnational groups and identities, leading societies that once embraced a national identity to fracture along ethnic and sectarian lines. Nowhere is this trend more evident than in the Middle East, a region that I have studied closely for much of my professional life. When I lived there years ago, I liked to walk through neighborhoods and villages to observe the rhythms of daily life. I remember seeing people of different backgrounds and beliefs living side by side, secular and devout. Today, relations among these groups are too often marred by suspicion and distrust and even outright hostility. Extremist groups have played a key role in fueling these tensions, luring impressionable young men and women to join their cause and spreading false narratives meant to divide and inflame. In some areas, a whole generation of growing up in an environment of militarism without a chance to develop the skills to contribute or even to engage in modern day society. The underlying causes of these trends are complex and difficult to address, and the long-term consequences of these developments are deeply troubling. Global instability is an issue that affects all countries, from Russia to China to the United States, and it must be met by strong collective response from the international community. I am certain that this issue will loom large on the agenda of the next administration. Another strategic challenge is dealing with the tremendous power, potential, opportunities, and risks resident in the digital domain. No matter how many geopolitical crises are seizing the headlines, the reliability, security, vulnerability, and the range of human activity taking place within cyberspace are constantly on my mind. On the cybersecurity front, organizations of all kinds are under constant attack from a range of actors, foreign governments, criminal gangs, extremist groups, cyber activists, and many others. 
In this new and relatively uncharted frontier, speed and agility are king. Malicious actors have shown that they can penetrate a network and withdraw in very short order, plundering systems without anyone knowing they were there until maybe after the damage is already done. While I served at the White House, cyber was part of my portfolio, and it was always the subject that gave me the biggest headache. Cyber attackers are determined and adaptive. They often collaborate and share expertise, and they come at you in so many different ways with an ever-changing array of tools, tactics, and techniques. Moreover, our laws have not yet adequately adapted to the emergence of this new digital frontier. Most worrisome, from my perspective, is that there is still no political or national consensus on the appropriate role of the government, law enforcement, homeland security, and intelligence agencies in safeguarding the security, the reliability, the resiliency, and the prosperity of the digital domain. The intelligence community is making great strides in countering cyber threats, but much work needs to be done. As we move forward on this issue, one thing we know is that private industry will have a huge role to play as the vast majority of the internet is in private hands. Protecting it is not something the government can do on its own. Right up there with terrorism, global instability, and cybersecurity is nuclear proliferation and the accompanying development of delivery systems, both tactical and strategic, that make all too real the potential for a nuclear event. Unsurprisingly, top of my list of countries of concern is North Korea, whose authoritarian and brutal leader has wantonly pursued a nuclear weapons program to threaten regional states and the United States, instead of taking care of the impoverished and politically repressed men, women, and children of North Korea. So what else is there besides terrorism, global instability, cybersecurity, and nuclear proliferation that worries the CIA director and keeps CIA officers busy around the clock and around the globe? Well, as a liberal arts guy from the baby boomer generation, the rapid pace of technological change during my lifetime has been simply dizzying. Moreover, as we have seen with just about every scientific leap forward, new technologies often carry substantial risks to the same degree that they hold tremendous promise. Nowhere are there stakes higher for our national security than in the field of biotechnology. Recent advances in genome editing that offer great potential for breakthroughs in public health are also cause for concern because the same methods could be used to create genetically engineered biological warfare agents. And though the overwhelming majority of nation states have tended to be rational enough to refrain from unleashing a menace with such unpredictable consequences, a subnational terrorist entity such as ISIL would have few compunctions in wielding such a weapon. The scope of the biothreat, as well as potential measures to mitigate it, were laid out very clearly last October in the bipartisan report of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense, chaired by former Senator Joe Lieberman and former Homeland Security Secretary Tom Ridge. As with the cyber threat, the international community's response to this issue lags behind the technology driving it. Effectively countering this danger requires the development of national and international strategies, along with the consensus of the laws, standards, and authorities that will be needed. And as CIA officers and their intelligence community colleagues work hard to protect our country from the darker side of technological change, we are mindful of how even beneficial advances can have destabilizing effects in the long run. 
agency all-source analysts drawing from academic studies and other elements of the ever-expanding pool of global open-source information seek to offer our national leaders early warning of potential challenges that could arise from the advances we are seeing today across the spectrum of technological endeavors. As former Defense Secretary and CIA Director Bob Gates is fond of saying, when intelligence officers smell flowers, they look around for a coffin. That remains a pretty good depiction of our intelligence mindset. <laughs> One example, again taking a page from the biotech and life sciences sectors, is how a wide range of breakthroughs that potentially could ex extend life expectancy, such as new methods of fighting cancer and a greater understanding of the aging process, could reinforce the trend toward older populations in advanced nations. Some of the world's leading economies, and even the lesser economies, could face even stronger headwinds from having significantly larger proportions of retired people and older people relative to working age citizens. Another example is the array of technologies, often referred to collectively as geoengineering, that potentially could help reverse the warming effects of global climate change. One that has gained my personal attention is stratospheric aerosol injection, or SAI, a method of seeding the stratosphere with particles that can help reflect the sun's heat in much the same way that volcanic eruptions do. An SAI program could limit global temperature increases reducing some risks associated with higher temperatures and providing the world economy additional time to transition from fossil fuels. This process is also relatively inexpensive. The National Research Council estimates that a fully deployed SAI program would cost about $10 billion yearly. As promising as it may be, moving forward on SAI would also raise a number of challenges for our government and for the international community. On the technical side, greenhouse gas emission reductions would still have to accompany SAI to address other climate change effects, such as ocean acidification, because SAI alone would not remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. On the geopolitical side, the technology's potential to alter weather patterns and benefit certain regions of the world at the expense of other regions could trigger sharp opposition by some nations. Others might seize on SAI's benefits and back away from their commitment to carbon dioxide reductions. And as with other breakthrough technologies, global norms and standards are lacking to guide the deployment and implementation of SAI and other geoengineering initiatives. Now I could go on and on and on and on about the things that fascinate me, but rather than talk about them, I thought I'd stop here and start the conversation with Judy and then I can take some of your questions. All right, so there you have uh, Steve Brennan, CIA Director, 2016 speech at the Council on Foreign Relations, talking about the cybersecurity threat, the biological weapons threat, and, oh yeah, it ties into global warming and how SAI can help reduce uh, c carbon somehow is the logic they're using there. But if you really follow what he was saying, kind of in a more esoteric interpretation would be the biological threat, we're interested in spraying things uh, to be able to combat the various threats, not just global warming. Um, so it ties it all in, and there's the director of the CIA talking about chemtrail spraying. And then he says, once we develop it along, you know, there'll be challenges, as if they haven't been doing it for 30 years. Um, if you look at, like, Agent Orange, or if you look at some of the weapons research or, you know, the vaccine research or the cancer research uh, 
the eight ball uh, back there in Fort Detrick and some of the other aerosolized tests and things that have been going on. Uh, even if you look at the Operation Sea Spray that we covered in the, either the first or the second episode of the BioSci War. And the fact that the military is willing to, the military, the intelligence agencies, the um, black operations, the uh, Nazis <laughs> who, the, uh, who have basically infiltrated uh, this scientific cult sect of the government and the military and are essentially, you know, now in full deployment of these biological weapons research programs onto the world and in a full test deployment phase. And that's sort of what we're tying together here in the knot with my theory or, you know, not, you know, the evidence seems to yield. This is what is uh, currently being uh, done on the planet. Now, you could you can definitely find a lot of side rabbit holes here that we're going to have to flesh out and go into. So in the BioSci War, uh, you know, we're not trying to figure it all out in one episode. This is a continuation series where we're going to go on and continue to unfold the information. I have a lot more that I'd like to uncover myself. I have a lot of questions and things that I don't have answers to. So um, also, like I discussed before, we could have some guests on that would be able to provide additional details and a, a better context on their research uh, in the future as well. So moving right along today, uh, there's another documentary that I wanted to finish out a clip with, and this is purely just uh, information. Um, but I think looking at the time and looking at my schedule uh yeah i think what we'll do is we'll give uh, one more article research because i did prepare this and this is just a historical take this is an article and w we will skip in the essence of time the documentary that i had planned and maybe that will be my intro for next week you see how that works uh and we're getting into quite a good flow um, so I'll, I want to have the Biological Warfare and National Security State, a chronology by Tom Burkhart um, from Global Research on 2009, August 9th of 2009, just to give us some more context and more history on biological weapons research. So just to get that into the record to be able to understand more about the history that we haven't filled in the blanks for here yet so far in the show. Oh, I thought I was sharing my screen. Um, there we go. You can see the article here now. Um, but really quick, since I probably, in the essence of the time on today's show, will not be coming back for a nice you know, diatribe on the outro. I do have some guests coming over actually today, and uh, there will be a birthday celebration today for the two boys, um, and I need to go try to help out a little bit and not just sit in here live streaming about bioweapons and bio-research, which is something that we've been covering here on the TylerBlair.com live streaming show. Thank you so much for watching today. And for those who have participated in the live stream, you're much appreciated and your presence. Uh, share this out if you wouldn't mind. Uh, we could use a little bit more traction to get uh, more people into the Discord to be able to participate in the BioSciWar chat. But uh, also you can uh, find the full clips and show notes in the TylerBlair.com post and you'll see that in the links here as well. Another exciting thing that I want to announce uh, that I can try to pull up here while I'm uh, let me come back over here really quick. Actually, let's give you a review of the control room. We have a lot of uh, fun and exciting updates. We've been doing a recording here in the home studio for Tyler Bloyer uh, Productions within the Stones Media Network is what I meant to say. And we've been producing my wife's Alt Eats course where we talk about uh, alternative 
foods that people may not be aware of that could help them with their health. And in her journey, she's found uh, that uh, particular foods did not help in the journey to healing and recovery from a, a long life of unhealthy eating and eating a lot of unhealthy foods. So we're producing a course. It's uh, going to be a course on alteats.life. And you can find out more about that soon, but I'll just give you a quick preview of what we've got so far. Um, let me mute this up and we'll just go back over here. This is a thing that we recorded, the tortilla course, and it provides uh, five different tortillas that you can make with five alternative flours. And I know this is kind of weird to plug in at the alt -E or at the bio Cywar tail end, but it does tie in to overall health and uh, prosperity. Um, being able to understand how to cook for yourself healthy alternative meals, right? And so we'll talk about that more in the future. It's just something we needed to update on here. And congratulations, Cassandra. And I really had fun producing this with you. And well, there's more behind the scenes footage that we could maybe cover in the future on Within the Stones Media Network. And uh, for Within the Stones, uh, let's see if I can find the course entry here. I will fumble a little bit if that's okay. Here we are. And this is also the other course that we have to offer is the Within the Stones Media Production Mini Course. This is a free course that I've done to show how I do the stuff that I'm doing right now. So if you're wondering, wow, how did he get that uh, live cam in there, the book cam, or how does how did you share content on, on this platform? How do you get the lower third? How does he make the camera in there like that? We cover all that in this series on OBS, and I need to re-record all these. So this is in a beta mode completely, but you can get in, you can get in now, you can get in by going to tylerbloyer.com and give some feedback if you'd like on the course modules themselves and that way um, you'll be able to see once we have more material and continue to add to your skill set if you'd like to produce live content and then uh, you know we'll continue to be able to go through and add videos to that library and then archive and the other thing and the easter egg that i put in at the end of this production today and then we're going to actually play out with that research article is uh I gotta make a few moves here while I'm talking, is a course called the Autonomy Obstacle Course. And we just started a few weeks back, Autonomy Season 5, and we are now in week two. We are doing our Q&A tomorrow. We had the lecture last night. I did catch some of it. Uh, we were busy prepping the boys' birthday for tomorrow, so I didn't wasn't able to catch the full lectures last night. But we also launched recently, we meaning Richard Grove and the autonomy course, uh, the media team and the copy team and the social team, we've all been working hard. And uh, the, the other various teams that provide support for us to be able to do that on the autonomy obstacle course. And now this is something that you can get for free. And I'll have that in the show notes if I can uh, remember to go over and do that right here before I get up and leave for the day is uh, this course here. So the Autonomy Obstacle Course, you can go get in here and learn more about autonomy for yourself. You can get autonomy uh, philosophically and in real life by going through the obstacle course and then following on your uh, journey to success through to uh, what, where this would lead you, which would be to a critical thinking 
class, actually. I'll give that away. There's a critical thinking trifecta course that you can get out of this, too. And that's what we were mentioning earlier when I was talking about solutions and for people to be able to critically challenge like information as it's coming in, you know, to in their inputs and not just trusting everything, especially when they're in a fear state or they're in a time where uh, the media has got everybody in such a panic about everything that basically what we've what we've seen is that people will just believe anything and everything that's said to them at that time when um, they're in that kind of fear state. And so even if we have known liars in the media telling us like what to how not what to think, but they, they give information that we just accept. Right. People don't critically challenge it enough. And so the once you go through this course, you'll be uh, offered a free prize, basically, with the critical thinking trifecta course, which we also recently produced in autonomy. And if you get through there, eventually you'll be able to find your way through the door to get into autonomy. And uh, that's the idea here. So you can get in there, you can get yourself autonomy eventually, and you can tell them that Tyler Bloyer sent you. And uh, it'll be something that um, I think most people that make it that far would get a ton of value out of. And they would be shocked and amazed to know that there was something like that out there and they hadn't become aware of it up to that point. So I'm kind of rambling because I was looking for the link to make sure I could put it in the show notes. I will get that link in the show notes right after the show. All right. So now we're just going to have the biological warfare of the national security state, a chronology to give us all a better background. Uh, this is from global research. I'm just going to have the actual uh, robot read it for us today and then uh, we'll exit the show. So thank you for watching the bio war uh, aerosol innovations we're going to aerosolized innovations this is part seven of the bio war and we'll have to do a follow-up so I, I can definitely feel a part two or aerosolized you know degradations <laughs> maybe as part two and right now uh, let's see if i can kick this off and everyone thanks again for watching security state acronology the history of bioweapons research in the United States is a history of illicit and illegal human experiments. From the Cold War to the War on Terror, successive American administrations have turned a blind eye on dubious research rightly characterized as having a little of the Buchenwald touch. While the phrase may have come from the files of the Atomic Energy Commission as Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eileen Wellsom revealed in her 1999 book, The Plutonium Files, an investigation into secret American medical experiments at the dawn of the nuclear age, it is as relevant today as the United States pours billions of dollars into work on some of the most dangerous pathogens known to exist in nature. That Cold War securocrats were more than a little concerned with a comparison to unethical Nazi experiments is hardly surprising. After all, with the defeat of the Axis powers came the triumphalist myth-making that America had fought a good war and had liberated humanity from the scourge of fascist barbarism. Never mind that many of America's leading corporations, from General Motors to IBM and from Standard Oil to Chase National Bank, were sympathizers and active collaborators with the Third Reich prior to and even during World War II, as documented by investigative journalists Charles Hyam in Trading with the Enemy and Edwin Black in IBM and the Holocaust. Like much else in American history, these were dirty little secrets best left alone. Soon enough however, these erstwhile Democrats would come to view themselves as mandarins of a new, expanding American empire for whom everything was permitted. 
In this context, the recruitment of top German and Japanese scientists who had conducted grisly medical experiments whilst waging biological war against China and the Soviet Union would be free of any moralizing or political wavering. As the Cold War grew hotter and hotter, America's political leadership viewed former Nazis and the architects of Japan's imperial project not as war criminals but allies in a new undertaking, the global rollback of socialism and the destruction of the Soviet Union by any means necessary. This tradition is alive and well in 21st century America. With the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks and subsequent anthrax mailings as a pretext for an aggressive militarist posture, the national security state is ramping up research for the production of genetically modified organisms for deployment as new, frightening weapons of war. According to congressional testimony by Dr. Alan M. Pearson, director of the Biological and Chemical Weapons Control Program at the Washington D.C.-based Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, with very little in the way of effective oversight or accountability, tens of billions of dollars have been appropriated for bioweapons-related research and development activities. Pearson reveals that approximately $1.7 billion has been appropriated for the construction on new high-containment facilities for bioweapons-related research. By high-containment facilities I mean facilities that are designed for work with agents that may cause serious or potentially lethal disease through exposure to aerosols, called Biosafety Level 3 or BSL-3 facilities, and facilities that are designed for work with agents that pose a high individual risk of life-threatening disease, which may be transmitted via the aerosol route and for which there is no available vaccine or therapy, called Biosafety Level 4 or BSL-4 facilities. Prior to 2002, there were three significant BSL-4 facilities in the United States. Today 12 are in operation, under construction, or in the planning stage. When completed, there will be in excess of 150,000 square feet of BSL-4 laboratory space, as much space as three football fields. The number of BSL-3 labs is also clearly growing but ascertaining the amount of growth is difficult in the absence of accurate baseline information. There are at least 600 such facilities in the U.S. Alan M. Pearson, Testimony, Germs, Viruses, and Secrets, The Silent Proliferation of Biolaboratories in the United States, House Energy and Commerce Committee, Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, October 2007. Chillingly, one consequence of this metastatic growth is that the very labs designed to protect against bioweapons may become a source for them. As the 2001 anthrax attacks amply demonstrated, the threat posed by a biological weapons incident may be closer to home than any of us care to think. Pearson writes, nor should we ignore the possibility that a U.S. biologist may become disgruntled or turn rogue while working in one of these labs. According to Edward Hammond, the director of the now-defunct Sunshine Project, while biological arms control is currently in its worst crisis since the signing of the Bioweapons Convention, BWC, in 1972, the American bioweapons industrial complex has embarked on the exploitation of biotechnology for weapons development. Indeed, Hammond relates that active programs utilizing genetic engineering techniques have been employed in offensive biowarfare programs in order to make biowarfare agents more effective. But increases in state subsidies for such work have generated new risks to the public. A recent Government Accountability Office, GAO, report faulted the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 
CDC, for lax security at three of the nation's five BSL-4 labs currently in operation that handle the world's most dangerous agents and toxins that cause incurable and deadly diseases. Agents such as Ebola, Marburg and smallpox are routinely studied at these facilities. And yet, as GAO auditors found, select agent regulations do not mandate that specific perimeter security controls be present at BSL-4 labs, resulting in a significant difference in perimeter security between the nation's five labs. According to the regulations, each lab must implement a security plan that is sufficient to safeguard select agents against unauthorized access, theft, loss, or release. However, there are no specific perimeter security controls that must be in place at every BSL-4 lab. While three labs had all OR nearly all of the key security controls we assessed, our September 2008 report demonstrated that two labs had a significant lack of these controls. Government Accountability Office Biosafety Laboratories, BSL-4 Laboratories improved perimeter security despite limited action by CDC, GAO 09-851, July 2009. As Global Security Newswire revealed in June, a recently completed inventory at a major U.S. Army biodefense facility found nearly 10,000 more vials of potentially lethal pathogens than were known to be stored at the site. The 9,220 samples which included the bacterial agents that cause plague, anthrax and tularemia, Venezuelan, Eastern and Western equine encephalitis viruses, Rift Valley fever virus, Hunin virus, Ebola virus, and botulinum neurotoxins were found during a four-month inventory at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases at Fort Detrick, M.D., according to Colonel Mark Cortapeter, the center's deputy commander. Martin Matashak, thousands of uncounted disease samples found at Army Biodefense Lab, Global Security Newswire, June 18, 2009. The GSN report states that while half of the new found material was destroyed after being recorded, Inventory Control Officer Sam Edwin told reporters that the other half was deemed worthy for further scientific use, catalogued, and stored in the center's containment freezers. More pertinently, what happens when the state itself turns rogue and under cover of national security and the endless war on terror creates the acute risk in the form of out-of-control laboratories designed to protect against bioweapons that instead, have become a source for them? Bioweapons and National Security, A Chronology Source Notes this chronology has drawn from dozens of books, articles, and declassified government documents in its preparation. Notable in this regard is Michael Christopher Carroll's Lab 257, The Disturbing Story of the Government's Secret Germ Laboratory, Linda Hunt, Secret Agenda, Bob Cohn and Eric Nadler, Dead Silence, Fear and Terror on the Anthrax Trail, The National Security Archive's Documentary History of U.S. Biological Warfare Programs and the Sunshine Project. Asterisk August 1945, Operation Paperclip an Office of Strategic Services, OSS, program to import top Nazi scientists into the United States. Linda Hunt relates in her book, Secret Agenda, that Reich Health leader, Reichsgesundheitführer, Dr. Kurt Blom, was saved from the gallows due to American intervention. Blom admitted he had worked on Nazi bacteriological warfare projects and had experimented on concentration camp prisoners with bubonic plague and sarin gas at Auschwitz. 
After his acquittal at the 1947 Nuremberg doctors' trial, Blome was recruited by the U.S. Army Chemical Corps and advised the Pentagon on biological warfare. Walter Paul Emil Schreiber, a Wehrmacht general who assigned doctors to experiment on concentration camp prisoners and dispersed state funds for such experiments was another paperclip recruit. In 1951, Schreiber went to work for the U.S. Air Force School of Medicine. Hubertus Strughold, the so-called father of space medicine discussed and carried out experiments on Dachau inmates who were tortured and killed, Strughold worked for the U.S. Air Force. Eric Traub, a rabid Nazi and the former chief of Heinrich Himmler's Insel Reims, the Nazi state's secret biological warfare research facility defects to the United States. Traub was brought to the U.S. by paperclip operatives and worked at the Naval Medical Research Institute and gave operational advice to the CIA and the BioWarriors at F.T. Detrick. Asterisk September 1945, General Shiro Ishii's Unit 731, a secret research group that organized Japan's chemical and biological warfare programs is granted amnesty by Supreme Allied Commander in the Pacific. General Douglas MacArthur in exchange for providing America with their voluminous files on biological warfare. All mention of Unit 731 is expunged from the record of the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal. During the war, Unit 731 conducted grisly experiments, including the vivisection of live prisoners, and carried out germ attacks on Chinese civilians and prisoners of war. According to researcher Sheldon H. Harris in Factories of Death, Japanese Biological Warfare 1932-45 and the American cover-up, Unit 731 scientists performed tests on prisoners with plague, cholera, smallpox, botulism, and other infectious diseases. Their work led to the development of what was called a defoliation bacilli bomb and a flea bomb used by the Imperial Army to spread bubonic plague across unoccupied areas of China. The deployment of these lethal munitions provided the Imperial Army with the ability to launch devastating biological attacks, infecting agriculture, reservoirs, wells, and populated areas with anthrax, plague-infected fleas, typhoid, dysentery and cholera. Rather than being prosecuted as war criminals, Unit 731 alumni became top bioweapons researchers. Ishii himself became an advisor at Uzam Ride at F.T. Detrick. 1950, a U.S. Navy ship equipped with spray devices supplied by F.T. Detrick, sprayed Seratia marcescens across the San Francisco Bay Area while the ship plied bay waters. Supposedly a non-pathogenic microorganism, 12 mostly elderly victims die. Asterisk early 1950s, Army biological weapons research begins at the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, PIADC. Vials of anthrax are transferred from F.T. Detrick to Plum Island. This information is contained in a now declassified report, Biological Warfare Operations, Research and Development Annual Technical Progress Report, Department of the Army, 1951. Asterisk 1951, racist experiments are carried out. U.S. Army researchers deliberately expose African Americans to the fungus Aspergillus fumigatus to discern whether they are more susceptible to infections caused by such organisms than white Europeans. Also in 1951, black workers at the Norfolk Supply Center in Virginia were exposed to crates contaminated with a fumigatus spores. Asterisk 1952, 
according to 1977 hearings by the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and the Subcommittee on Health and Scientific Research into Project Mgultra, we discover the following, under an agreement reached with the Army in 1952, the Special Operations Division, SOD, at Fort Detrick was to assist CIA in developing, testing, and maintaining biological agents and delivery systems. By this agreement, CIA acquired the knowledge, skill, and facilities of the Army to develop biological weapons suited for CIA use. Asterisk 1953, Frank Olson, a chemist with the Army's top secret special operations division at F.T. Detrick was involved with biological weapons research and was tasked to the CIA for work on Gultra. In 1953, as deputy acting head of special operations for the CIA, Olson is a close associate of psychiatrist William Sargant who was investigating the use of psychoactive drugs as an interrogation tool at Britain's Biological Warfare Centre at Porton Down. After being dosed with LSD without his knowledge by Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, the agency's liaison to F.T. Detrick, Olson undergoes a severe psychological crisis. The scientist begins questioning the ethics of designing biological organisms as weapons of war. This does not sit well with his agency and army superiors. On November 24, 1953, Olson and a CIA minder, Robert Lashbrook, check into New York's Staler Hotel. He never checked out. According to Lashbrook, Olson had thrown himself through the closed shade and window, plunging 170 feet to his death. But because of his knowledge of CIA terminal experiments and other horrors conducted under Mgultra, the Olson family believes the researcher was murdered. When Olson's son Eric has his father's body exhumed in 1994, the forensic scientist in charge of the examination determines that Olson had suffered blunt force trauma to the head prior to his fall through the window. The evidence is called rankly and starkly suggestive of homicide. Norman G. Cornoyer, one of Olson's closet friends at F.T. Detrick, also believes the scientist was murdered. When asked by the Baltimore Sun in 2004 why Olson was killed, Cornoyer said, to shut him up. He wasn't sure we should be in germ warfare, at the end. Asterisk 1955, following a CIA biowarfare test in Tampa Bay, Florida, the area experiences a sharp rise in cases of whooping cough, including 12 deaths. The agency had released bacteria it had obtained from the U.S. Army's Chemical and Biological Warfare Center at the Dugway Proving Grounds. Asterisk 1956-1958, More Racist Experiments The U.S. Army conducted live field tests on poor African-American communities in Savannah, Georgia, and Avon Park, Florida. Mosquitoes were released into neighborhoods at ground level by researchers or by helicopter, residents were swarmed by the pest, many developed unknown illnesses and some even died. After the tests, army personnel posing as health workers photographed and tested the victims, then disappeared. While specific details of the experiments remain classified, it has been theorized that a strain of yellow fever was used to test its efficacy as a bioweapon. Asterisk 1962 a declassified CIA document obtained by the National Security Archive relates the following, in November 1962 Mr. Redacted advised Mr. Lyman Kirkpatrick that he had, at one time, been directed by Mr. Richard Bissell to assume responsibility for a project involving the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, then Premier, 
Republic of Congo. According to Mr. Redacted Poison was to have been the vehicle as he made reference to having been instructed to see Dr. Sidney Gottlieb in order to procure the appropriate vehicle. Gottlieb was the chief scientific advisor for the CIA's Mgultra program. Asterisk June 1966, the U.S. Army's Special Operations Division dispenses Bacillus Subtilis Var Niger throughout the New York City subway system. More than a million people were exposed when Army operatives dropped light bulbs filled with the bacteria onto ventilation grates. Asterisk December, 1967, The New York Times reports, Fatal virus found in wild ducks on L.I. A virus never seen before in the Western Hemisphere, began with ducks in Long Island at a site opposite Plum Island, the virus devastates the area's duck industry and by 1975 has spread across the entire continent. Asterisk 1971, the U.S. Department of Agriculture proclaims that Plum Island is considered the safest in the world on virus diseases. USDA's proof? There has never been a disease outbreak among the susceptible animals maintained outside the laboratory since it was established. Asterisk 1975, PAD begins feeding live viruses to hard ticks, including the Lone Star Tick never seen outside Texas prior to 1975. The Lone Star Tick is a carrier of the Borrelia burgdorferi BB, bacteria, the causal agent of Lyme disease. The first cases of the illness are reported in Connecticut, directly across from the facility. Current epidemiological data conclusively demonstrate that the epicenter of all U.S. Lyme disease cases is Plum Island. It is theorized that deer bitten by infected ticks swam across the narrow waterway separating the island from the mainland. Asterisk September 1978, APAD News release relays the following, foot and mouth disease has been diagnosed in cattle in a pre-experimental animal holding facility at the Plum Island Animal Disease Center. A documented outbreak has occurred. Asterisk 1979, an internal investigation of the FMD incident reveals massive, widespread failures in the containment systems at PIADC. A USDA committee report recommends that Lab 101 not be considered as a safe facility in which to do work on exotic disease agents until corrective action is accomplished. Asterisk 1979, despite containment failures and poor practices, Uzamride undertakes the investigation of the deadly Zagazig 501 strain of Rift Valley fever at Piatk. Producing symptoms similar to aerosolized hemorrhagic fevers such as Marburg and Ebola virus, the Army inoculates sheep that should have been destroyed as a result of the FMD outbreak with an experimental Rift Valley fever vaccine. The experiments are conducted outdoors, in violation of the lab's primary directive prohibiting such work. During a 1977 Rift Valley outbreak Indiana, Egypt, some 200,000 people are infected and 700 others die excruciating deaths. A survey of blood serum taken before 1977 proved that the virus was not present in Egypt prior to the epidemic. By 2000, rampant outbreaks of the disease have occurred in Saudi Arabia and Yemen with the virus poised to unfurl its tentacles into Europe. Asterisk 1982 a federal review begun after the FMD outbreak concludes, we believe there is a potentially dangerous situation and that without an immediate massive effort to correct deficiencies, a severe accident could result. Lack of preventive maintenance, and pressures by management to expedite programs have resulted in compromising safety. 
1983, 6PAD workers test positive for African swine fever virus. The workers are not notified of the test results which are conducted clandestinely during routine annual physical exams. Asterisk 1991, USDA privatizes PIADC. A New Jersey firm, Burns and Rowe Services Corporation low bids other competitors and is awarded the contract. In cost-cutting moves, the contractor scales back on safety and security measures in place for decades. Asterisk June 1991, an underground cable supplying Lab 257 shorts out but is not replaced since there is no money left in the budget. Asterisk August 1991, Hurricane Bob, a Category 3 storm similar to Hurricane Katrina, slams into Plum Island, knocking down overhead power lines that connect Lab 257. The underground cable which was Lab 257's primary power source has not been repaired. Freezers containing virus samples defrost, air seals on lab doors are breached and animal holding room vents fail. Piatk's fail-safe mechanism of air dampers to seal off the facility also fail. Melted virus samples mix with infected animal waste on lab floors as swarms of mosquitoes fill the facility. Asterisk September 1991, the USDA denies that any system failures occurred during the hurricane. Whistleblowing workers in Lab 257 at the time of the blackout are fired in further cost-cutting moves and several subsequently develop mysterious undiagnosed diseases. Asterisk 1992, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, and the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, cite PIADC with hundreds of safety violations. When OSHA returned five years later, None of the violations have been corrected and discover 124 new violations. Asterisk July 1992, although USDA officially denies that PIAD conducts biological warfare research, 14 officials from the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Pentagon visit Plum Island. Internal documents reveal that that the visit was to meet with Plum Island staff regarding biological warfare. According to Carroll, the visitors were part of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency reviewing the dual-use capabilities of the facility. Asterisk Spring 1995, Lab 257 is closed. Although scheduled to be fully decontaminated and demolished in 1996 Carroll reports, Lab 257 still stands today, rotting from weathered decay, harboring who knows what deep within. Asterisk August 1999, the first four human cases of West Vile virus, a mosquito-borne pathogen never diagnosed in North America are diagnosed on Long Island. Horse farms within a five-mile radius of one another, directly opposite Plum Island, report horses dying following violent seizures. An investigation reveals that 25% of the horses in this small, localized area test positive for West Nile. The outbreak begins in August 1999 when birds, including half the exotic bird species in the Bronx Zoo begin dying mysteriously. The virus has an affinity for birds and the vector is soon identified as the mosquito. In 1999, the disease was confined to the New York City area, however by 2002, the Centers for Disease Control reports all but six of the lower 48 states reported West Nile virus in birds, mosquitoes, animals, or human populations. CDC estimates that some 200,000 people are infected nationally. 
During the initial outbreak in 1999, veterinary pathologist Tracy McNamara suspected a casual relationship between the bird die-offs and the human cases, CDC rebuffs her concerns. Through her persistent efforts, it is determined that the virus was indeed West Nile, a pathogen that had never been seen in North America. The CDC announces that West Nile virus was in the nation's blood supply when transplant patients who had no prior exposure to the pathogen developed the disease. The USDA's response? Deny, deny, deny. However, Jim House, a former PIADC scientist, believes that West Nile samples existed prior to 1999 on Plum Island. He told Carol, there were samples there and it wasn't answered clearly to the public. They didn't honestly tell how many samples they had and that's when people started to get upset. When Carol filed a Freedom of Information Act request for a catalogue of germs held in the Plum Island Virus Library, he was turned down on grounds of national security. Asterisk September 1999, The New York Times reports that due to the growing threat of biological terrorism against America's food supply, USDA is seeking money to turn the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, into a top security laboratory where some of the most dangerous diseases known to man or beast can be studied. Asterisk 1999, a Cold War era document is declassified proving that in the early 1950s Uzam Riot shipped 12 vials of weaponized anthrax, enough to kill 1 million people, to Piatk. In 1993 Newsday revealed that previously unclassified documents demonstrated Pentagon plans to disrupt the Soviet economy by spreading diseases to kill pigs, cattle, and horses. Asterisk 1999, plans to upgrade PIAD by building a BSL-4 lab are killed when Congress pulls funding after a public outcry. Asterisk September 2001, after the anthrax attacks. Despite USDA denials that anthrax was ever present on the island, FBI investigators include the following questions in their polygraph examination of scientists under investigation, Have you ever been to Plum Island? Do you know anyone who works at Plum Island? What do they do there? Asterisk December 2002, The New York Times reports a three-hour power failure at the Plum Island Animal Disease Center last weekend renewed concerns about the safety of the high-security government laboratory. According to the Times, the loss of power and failure of all three backup generators raised fears for the first time that the containment of infectious pathogens could have been seriously compromised at the laboratory. Asterisk June 2003 President George W. Bush transfers control of PIAD to the Department of Homeland Security. The airspace over the island is unrestricted and the gates leading to Lab 101 remain open and unguarded. Asterisk May 2004, in a sign that work on Plum Island is being shifted to other sites, including those run by private contractors, DHS announces an $18 million grant to study Rift Valley fever, avian influenza, and brucellosis. Asterisk August 2004, DHS confirmed that an FMD outbreak had spread briefly in two previously undisclosed incidents earlier this summer, the New York Times reports. A DHS spokesperson said the virus remained within the laboratory sealed by a containment area and that there had been no risk to human or animals. An investigation into the cause was continuing. Asterisk 2004, at the Medical University of Ohio. 
a researcher is infected with valley fever at the center's BSL-3 facility, valley fever is a biological weapons agent. Asterisk February 2005, University of Iowa researchers conduct unauthorized genetic engineering experiments with the select agent tularemia, rabbit fever. The Sunshine Project reports that researchers mixed genes from tularemia species and introduced antibiotic-resistant characteristics into the samples. Asterisk March 2005, when a containment facility fails, workers at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill are exposed to tuberculosis when the BSL-3 fail-safe systems malfunction, a blower pushes contaminated air out of the work cabinet, infecting the workroom. The facility had been inspected one month prior to the accident by U.S. Army. Asterisk Summer 2005, at the same Ohio facility a serious accident occurs when workers are infected with an aerosol of valley fever. Asterisk October-November 2005, dozens of samples thought to be harmless are received by the University of California at Berkeley. In fact, they are samples of Rocky Mountain spotted fever a BSL-3 bioweapons agent due to its transmission as an aerosol. The samples are handled without adequate safety precautions, however, the community is never notified of the incident. Asterisk August 2005, the whistleblowing watchdog group Tri-Valley Cares obtains documents in May 2009 proving that the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory had conducted restricted experiments with select biological agents at the facility. In 2005, LLNL inadvertently released anthrax at the lab in another incident that lab officials attempted to cover up, five individuals were infected with the deadly pathogen. Asterisk April 2006, three Texas A&M biodefense researchers are infected with Q fever, a biological weapons agent. Rather than reporting the incident to the CDC as required by law, Texas A&M officials cover up the accident. Asterisk August 2006, DHS announces that PIADC is not on the rebuilding list and a new site to study infectious diseases is being considered. Asterisk January 2009, DHS announces that the new National Bio and Agro Defense Facility will be built in Manhattan, Kansas. Asterisk July 2009, Government Accountability Office investigators charge that DHS relied on a rushed, flawed study to locate the $700 million research facility for highly infectious pathogens in a tornado-prone section of Kansas. Among other concerns, the GAO cites DHS's flawed and outdated methodology in its criticism. Those concerns are, the ability of DHS and the federal government in general to safely operate a biosafety facility such as the proposed NBAF the potential for a pathogenic release through accidents, natural phenomena, and terrorist actions, our May 2008 testimony that concluded that DHS had not conducted or commissioned a study to determine whether FMD research could be conducted safely on the U.S. mainland, natural phenomena such as tornadoes, earthquakes, and hurricanes that could cause catastrophic damage to the NBAF and result in the release of a pathogen, the possibility that an infected mosquito vector could escape allowing a pathogen such as Rift Valley Fever virus to become permanently established in the United States. The economic effects of a release or a perceived release on the local, state, and national livestock industry. Tom Burghardt is a researcher and activist based in the San Francisco Bay Area. In addition to publishing in Covered Action Quarterly and Global Research, 
his articles can be read on Dissident Voice, The Intelligence Daily, Pacific Free Press and the whistleblowing website WikiLeaks. He is the editor of Police State America, U.S. Military Civil Disturbance Planning, distributed by AK Press. Related Articles